Right, welcome in our episode of the XL Podcast. My special guest, DJ Kid, or as his family like to call him, Peter. <laughs> How you doing, mate? I'm all right, brother. It's K for knowledge, I for instinct, and D for dedication. There you go. <laughs> That's what somebody, somebody came up with that one day and they said that to me. I said, I've never ever thought of it like that, but I've also heard uh, kid spelt backward describes you the best. <laughs> <laughs> And that's taken from a film, um, I don't know if you remember, it's a film called House Party, Kid and Play. Uh-huh. It's part because one of them's called Kid and they're having a kind of like a, bat, a rhyme and battle thing and that's what he says, kids spell backwards, describes you best. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> well listen, with, the, with these podcasts, I don't know if you've, if you've had the chance to listen to any of them, it's basically just a chat and I, and I kind of start it like we've spoke about before, it's like for the start to where we are the new. So, right. my first question to you would be, when was you aware of music and when did you first start being genuinely interested in music? It doesn't need to be like, right now and then DJ. You know, it could be just a, a song as a kid you're hearing. When, when was you first aware of music? Yeah, so from... So I was born in 1973 in Edinburgh and I, and I lived in a place called Gracemount in the High Flats with, with my mum. And... <laughs> I can't remember um, if she wasn't really into music that much at the time. We didn't have a, a record player as such at the time. But my gran and my granddad, who lived close by, they had a they had a, a stereo. My granddad had a kind of stereo system, um, and I used to see their records, and I never used to touch it because it was my granddad's system, and it was my granddad's. Very much mind my furniture, then he touched that, you know, uh-huh. you know, whatever. So, but anyway, when he was out, I used to plug the microphone in and start mucking about with the tapes and everything. Um, but for me, when it really changed was when I got a Fergus, a little Ferguson tape player, a little cassette player that I got for a Christmas. I think I got it in um, 1970. 78, somewhere like 1978, 1979, something like that. It's a little Ferguson tape player. Now, they were really, really popular back then, but with that tape player, I got, um, in fact, no, it was about 80, 81, I think, because the albums that I got with it were uh, Adam and the Ants' Final Frontier album, I think it's called, and ABBA's album, I think the album was called Super Trooper. I think that was the name of it. But when I got that cassette player, um, I can remember vividly going out. Now, I lived on, me and my mum lived on the 11th floor of these flats. I remember going out with my tape player on Christmas Day and sitting in the stairwell and putting on ABBA's Super Trooper. Now, because the stairwell was like big, massive concrete, you know, 11 floors up, I remember sitting down and playing it and Super Trooper coming on and it... Reverberating around the whole staircase, and I remember being kind of blown away by the, you know, you know, everybody knows Super Trooper how it starts. It's got a vocal Super Trooper. Uh-huh. You know, I remember being like quite taken aback by the sound, and I think sitting in the staircase because it was echoing was. Aye, know, the reverb right up the stairs would have made it yeah, sound. Yeah, you know what I mean. Aye, and I was, you know, so, but that was my first kind of, I think, 
that certainly was my first device um, that I got. And then not long after that, I got the first Sony Walkman. Um, I can't remember. I actually did a post about that on my Facebook page not long ago, talking about the actual version of it. It was the first Walkman stereo that anybody put out, Sony put it out. It was huge. Mm-hmm. It was a blue, a blue um, portable stereo. Um, and I used to take that about with me all the time, all the time. So after that, I kind of got a, my mum's boyfriend at the time got a, he worked in a record shop in Edinburgh and he bought us a, he bought us a record player and gave us records. And for me to, uh, the first record that I went out and bought in a shop, seven inch single was uh, Mike Oldfield, uh, the Blue Peter theme tune. Mm-hmm. I bought that on a seven-inch single. Um, I mean, and I mean, it's a classic tune. A lot of people did actually don't know the the old Blue Peter. I mean, a lot of people maybe listening to this will be like, "What the hell is Blue Who's Peter?" Blue Peter? <laughs> yeah, I think it's maybe a porno you made. <laughs> <laughs> so Blue Peter. Blue Peter was a, a children's what? What could you call it? Like a, an afternoon television program that that was centered around. What did, I mean, they did Educo- a lot of educational stuff. entertainment, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, like, you got, you got, you, you learned how to make a, a Christmas decoration out of coat hangers and aye, pencil. Mad stuff. John Noakes climbing up that, Nelson's column and all that with his safety harnesses. Right, you know, that, so, um, so they had the steam tune and it was written by Mike Oldfield. So obviously, Mike Oldfield tub, tubular bells. Um, so, and from there, it was just seemed to be a. a I was always putting records on that record player that my mum had was one of those ones where you could stack up the seven inches uh, on the little spin thing in the middle. So, you know, this was like, you know, pre kind of, you know, I suppose we're queuing them. I was queuing them up, seeing how many seven inch singles I can get into this little spindle thing at the top to, because, you know, a lot of people maybe don't even know what these are, but you could put a record on and then when that finished, it triggered the spindle, the, the arm came back and the spindle opened up and the next single dropped down and it played it, you know, right. automatically. So um, it was quite a nifty bit of, bit of equipment, that. So ultimately those elements between my granddad's system, me getting my little tape deck machine and the Walkman and then that hi-fi, that, that was my first real introduction to listening to music on a regular basis and, and, and playing records. Your family must have knew you had an interest here, even for like the first cassette tape, then it followed up with a Walkman. I mean, probably a lot of people who only run about our ages, like younger listeners, they probably don't understand the impact of the, of the Walkman especially. You know, because like, even like a wee cassette, that was a big deal when you had a wee cassette player in your room with a speaker on it, innit? You'd keep that in your room or whatever, but then the Walkman, it was like, you could take it to school, you could, you know, do what it said, walk about and listen to music. Yeah, and that was like a game changer, wasn't it? I mean, what oh, the equivalent of what the MP, the fucking iPod player or whatever, you know? Oh, definitely. Maybe, maybe I would, put, you know, definitely. You know, it was huge. It was. Um, I know that the, I looked at the market sales for it. I mean, they were phenomenal. Um, and obviously, quick after that Walkman, you know, there like loads of big companies jumped on the scene. But that first Sony Walkman, one of the th- the things that I liked about that Sony Walkman was it had this thing. You could you had two ports on it, so two people could sit and plug in headphones and listen to the music. It also had this little um, button on the side. There was an orange button. Um, I can't remember the name of the. It wasn't a talkover, but you could actually 
cut out the music so you could be listening to it. And I used to remember sort of playing music and co- kind of chopping it up by pressing this button. Mm-hmm. The headphones, I could press it because it had a microphone on the side. Of it, so you pre- if somebody wanted to talk to you, you could press this orange button and they could talk and it would come through the headphones. Oh, wow. Be like, Say something. Hello. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. But as I said, I used to just press it and like, you know, the transformer scratch, which Grandmaster Flash is um, supposedly the, the 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 person that was was um, that said that came up with that. I was thinking, well, I was doing it before. I was doing it before. <laughs> <laughs> you just didn't get any credit. <laughs> I was saying that on my workman. I was transforming Adamant and Abba on my workman. Um, but no, I mean, Hugh, you know, Hugh definitely a huge. Um, not not. I don't remember seeing a lot of people with them, but for me. Um, in terms of through Adam at, Adam at that album, the fi- I think it's called the Final Frontier. That's where my kind of my first kind of introduction to to sort of drums came about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few Adamants. The, the music was, was there was quite quite militant drumming going on in a lot of the, those tunes. Yeah. They were being quite taken by the drumming, and um, but. At that, I got like a little drum kit. I got my mum bought me a little drum kit. It was a tiny little kids drum kit. I ended up putting the skins in, hitting it that hard because they were just plastic drum skins. You know, they're not like mm-hmm. it wasn't a drum kit. It was a child's drum kit. Um, I think I put my foot through one of them. I know, um, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I think I, I think there was a. I don't know if I don't know if they were they were ever really. Um, that mindful of my my interest to, to music at that stage, really. I think they must have been because they're, they're giving you like a cassette player, a Walkman, a deck, a drum kit. You know, they're seeing they're seeing you. They're seeing that something that's keeping you quiet and out the way. No, no, definitely. I mean, um, I think uh, the tape deck in particular. I used to remember. I I wish I still had the tapes. I used to record. I used to sit and record the telly. And I used to listen back to him. So I used to record like things like Happy Days and watching like films like Wizard of Oz and stuff like that and listen back to the tapes. And I used to remember listening to the tapes and you can hear me singing the songs, mm-hmm. going along with things and stuff like that. Um, I did have those tapes for a long time and I, I don't know what happened to them. I thought I wish I had them because they were quite funny to listen to. Um, it's but it was a very early kind of sampling in it. Definitely, I was into more into the, you know, I really loved the recording aspect of the of the cassette player. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember when I got into Lego, I actually tried to build Lego around the cassette player into something else. <laughs> <laughs> like I built it into something and I, you know, I adapted the cassette player, do you know what I mean? Because it's a, it was just a little, it was a portable cassette player. It had a, a handle, I think it came with a strap as well that you could carry about. But we, we didn't get a, my gran had a transistor radio. And I remember battery operated, and I remember I used to go up to my grands, and I used to take that out. I remember a particular on holidays, sunny days, and and sneak it out of the house and take it away to the park. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And go and see my pals with this. You know, I mean, and back then you're talking about the the late seventies. Do you know what I mean? Early eighties. I mean, the channels. The 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 that I was being able to play on the radio back right. then you know you were it was just all 
just the, I think Radio One, Radio Two. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's not like it is today, where it's just you know. I never had a dedicated channel or dance or whatever. It was just whatever no, it was on no, the radio. No, nothing like that. So it would just be the, the the general music of of what was getting played at the day. So, you know, back back then, you know, there's a lot. Of, my my grand particular was into con- country and western music. So like Kenny Rogers, uh, Dolly Parton, um, and I, I believe listening listening to my grand playing her music kind of had an, an influence on me subconsciously in some ways. I really like. Uh, lyrics and storytelling lyrics in particular mm-hmm. uh, so um, I like uh, I've always been a big fan of Big Country um, and one of the reasons uh, for that I believe is because of the, the, the storytelling that comes about by Stuart Adamson's lyric writing um, but I also lived in Dunfermline and I was his neighbour for quite some time as well so wow. um, when I moved over I lived in Edinburgh from 1973 till 1982. Just after the World Cup in 1982, it was Hispania 82. Uh, me and my mum moved to Dunfermline. Um, and so when we moved to Dunfermline, we moved to a place called Elgin Court, which was a new, brand new housing development. Um, just kind of outside the town a little bit. Um, and within about, I think it was about maybe six months, Stuart Adamson, I mean, I had never even heard of Big Country at this time. Stuart Adamson and his and his wife Sandra bought a house in the court. They, we, me and my mum stayed at 22. They stayed at, I think it was 8 Elgin Court. And I saw Big Country, when they played their first performance on Top of the Pops, I remember watching it in Elgin Court and being like, this guy lives... Across the street. Just in this little court. It was quite a... You know, uh, we just say starstruck. I mean, it certainly was like, oh, there's, to me, I think it was something more about the, here's somebody who's involved in the music industry mm-hmm. here. You know what I mean? Ah, um, he's not in London or on the telly miles away. It's oh, like, you know he's, I mean? he's and right like, here. And, 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 and if anybody who knows what Dunfermline's like, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I've got a great affinity with, with Dunfermline, the tune, as they call it. Um, and I love, I really enjoyed the time that I spent living there. And, and particularly because of big country and because I got to know Stuart and uh, Sandra and his first, well, I didn't get to know Callum, but I babysat for, babysat for his son Callum a couple of times. Um, but big con- uh, Dunfermline is, even though it's only a short drive over the bridge from, from Edinburgh, it's like a different planet. It's so different over there. It's, you know, Fife in particular. Is Even so a different, different accent as well, isn't it? Funny you should say that. When my mum went over, when we first went over there, so my mum was in my mum was in travel and my mum used to work in Edinburgh for a company called Ellerman Travel. And she, the reason that we moved to Dunfermline is because she got offered the manager's position in, over there. So we went over there um and I remember the first time that I went out for a kind of wandering, wander around the town and I got lost and I actually spoke to two guys and I did, I couldn't understand what they were saying. And that, and they were only Fifers. Uh, but Fife accents can be quite strong. You, do you know what I mean? It's like, uh-huh. you know, all these different sort of pockets of Fife, you know, Balingere, Cooper, you know, Kirkcaldy Recife even you know there's all these little mining towns and all that and there's a, I think there's slightly different accents going on I'm, I, I suppose like there, there kind of is an Edinburgh way I'm not necessarily sure about Glasgow whether Glasgow has different dialects you know from Central Aye, definitely 
everywhere. I think everywhere's got wee, wee colloquialisms in it, wee local colloquialisms. But um, so, but just prior to the big country, like musically for me, getting into music, big country were the first group that I really got into. But just before we moved from Edinburgh, we went to. There used to be a big department store in Edinburgh called Goldbergs, and I, th- I don't I think they had. I think they had one in Glasgow years ago. Um, massive, massive department store in Edinburgh. It was huge. It was very, very popular. It was over multiple floors. It had an aviary on the roof, a big cafe that you could go to. This was the place to go for toys. And for when you went shopping with your ma and go to Goldberg's, you just let you just left your ma toy department. Uh-huh. And you said, and that's where you were going to be. Because you got to play with all this stuff, all the new uh-huh. You know, especially in the seventies, that that sort of the technology was changing. You know, like you said, the Walkman. There were more recordable devices. Record players were coming more, more, more in the fashion. Even televisions, even back then, still weren't really commonplace in everybody's home. Mm-hmm. Even if they did, a lot of people had black and white tellies. So toys and stuff like that. It was like a really exciting time for. A lot of it was mechanical toys, winding up stuff, and uh, you know, eventually you've got things like big track. Don't know if you remember that. Yeah, that's right, the big white truck, and you could program it. Like we program thing, you go a bit. There's a lot of robotic stuff coming in, you know. So as I said, Goldberg's was the place to go. But we went there one time, and we they had a record department, and we bought the Police album. I think it was the I think it's the third album. It's called Zenyata Mondata. I think it's how you, how you pronounce it. Right. First tune and the first tune on it stand uh, don't stand so close to me. That I would say putting that record on and listening to that, it's funny. I saw Goldie talking about a tune like what tune really, you know, sparked your interest in music. And for him it was um the logic is it called the logical song by Supertramp. Mm-hmm. Uh but for me, stand, uh, don't stand so close to you when you put when they play that, and I can do it now, I can put it on, it's got this kind of dark, kind of stringy intro thing, and I can put it on now and I can almost be transported back to playing it for the first time. It's so impactful for me. Yeah, yeah. I really got into them and, and got to know their music quite well before Big Country. But again, one of the things that stood out from them was the drummer. The police's drummer's called Steve Copeland. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was another thinking, yeah, drums, I really like drums. So I then started to want to kind of be a drummer. And through once I got into Big Country, again, I, I mean, if people that know Big Country, the Mark Brzecki, the drummer, is a very milit they've got a very militant style. Big countries always had this kind of I mean they talk about the guitar playing being kind of bagpipe sound and stuff like that, which I know Stuart did he? he didn't like that that description of the guitar playing because it's the, the effects it's an, called an Evo that he uses on the strings. Um but yeah that I decided to, that I wanted to be a, a that's when I decided I wanted to be a drummer. I really felt that I could you know I was I'm into drums I want to be a drummer. And luckily for me, uh, five minutes from a house in Dunfermline in Elgin Street in Dunfermline, there was a place called um, uh, Sound Control. And I, don't I was think one in were... Glasgow as well, why? 
I think they were quite widespread throughout yeah. Scotland at the time. So I used to go in there and they had a drop, they had a big massive drum room. And I used to just go in and bah. Somebody gave me a guitar when we were at that age, like a burst up guitar. I had like two strings on it. But I remember taking it there and buying the strings and getting it all linked up. But I used to go in, they had keyboards and everything, the early Casio keyboards. But I used to go in and get I got to know the guys. I mean, I'm relatively still quite young. I mean, I would be like maybe 10, 11, that sort of age. And they used to let me go in and play the drums. That's and cool, wasn't it? They'll let you just I, a kid into blasting the drums. Aye, they would just like just crack on. Because obviously people would be going in and plugging guitars into amps and playing them and stuff like that. So um I really got into that playing in there. Then I got to know people through my mum who heard a drum kit. I got to go and play on a drum kit at somebody's house that I know quite a lot. Um but I could never convince my mum to get me a drum kit. Right, it's like, a fucking racket having a house, man, isn't it? It's like a big commitment. She's like, I'm no, there's no you're not getting a drum kit. I was like, well, I want to be a I want to be a drummer. That's what I want to be. I was determined that that's how what I was going to be. Uh-huh. So I ended up getting a drum pad, which is I don't know if you're aware, ah, like yeah. a little rubber pad and a pair of sticks. And I used to have headphones. And my grand bought us a a, a stereo, our first what you maybe want to call a ghetto blaster. And I got a drumming uh, sort of tutorial cassette tape that I used to play with my headphones on and try and emulate what I was hearing playing mm-hmm. on the drum Doing pad. and all these kind of things. You remember the things like that? Try to learn the snares and stuff. And and funnily enough, again, just up the road from Sound Control, the, the TA was there. The Dunfermline's TA were there. And they used to be out with the snare, like the, the band, on a regular basis with the snares. Mm-hmm. Like 20 guys on snare drums, you know, with the big drum around them. And I used to go up and watch them through the... I used to go up and stand at the gate and watch them through the gate and used to love the sound of snares. Especially that military drum kind of snare. The kind of stuff you would see, the tattoo. Or, aye, aye. Um, but again, I, you know, just my mum just was not into buying me a drum kit. <laughs> We'd say an Ayrshire, a Richt Ticht snare drum. Is that right? <laughs> so, like, from, from that... Where where did the where did the movement come into getting a set of decks and working that? I mean, are you aware of you know, we're a similar age, so like no a funny feeling like, you know, hip hop's coming into your life pretty soon, you know. That's electro. You know, where um, when's that seeping into things? So via that tape deck that my grand bought me, or bought us when we lived in Dunfermline. Um, I think it was an Amstrad tape deck. It's quite a nice one. My mum tend to not really listen to that much music. It's it, it's funny because I spoke to her a couple, about a couple of years ago about the the, the, stereo, the record player that we had. She said, "Oh, that was John, our partner at the time. She he bought us that in here at the record shop." I said, "Oh, I didn't know that." Um, she didn't really. She did listen to music sometimes, but it wasn't really. Wasn't really something she did on a on a daily basis. Even now, she doesn't really listen to that much music. Um, so that ghetto blaster used to be basically stationed in my bedroom. Mm-hmm. I used to keep it. She, my mum, as I said, did listen to tapes. So I used to listen to radio channels, and one of the first 
I mean, we all listened to the ch- the top forty charts on a Sunday, you know, back then, and um, that um, yeah, we could record that 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 a, a recordable tape deck. So you know, we all, I mean, everybody talks about recording the charts and sitting with it on pause, right. cut, talking, so you could have a a, mic, a tape in a sense of simultaneous music without the. Smashy and nicey. Aye, uh, they talking their jingles, can hang just all the tunes. Yeah, uh, do you know what I mean? So, um, other than the or other than the top forty charts on a Sunday, the first person that I really got tuned into in terms of hearing different music was John Peel, um, and that was on. I think, I think it was Radio One that he had a. It was like a nighttime show. Mm-hmm. I think it was quite late at night. It was like ten o'clock at ten o'clock at night or something like that. And through him, I used to start here. I mean, John Peel would be champion any style of music. I mean, everything, Aye, right across the board, wasn't it? Well, every, every, everything, any different styles. But again, I was just. I think going through as you did back then, going through the dial, seeing what you can pick up, to see if you can hear the polis. <laughs> I'm like, what's that? That's an, is that an, somebody's talking in an aircraft, you know. And like, uh-huh. but I eventually came across um, a DJ called Mike Allen, who did a show called uh, National Fresh. And now National Fresh was on Capital Radio in London, but it was broadcast in Scotland again through late night through um radio fourth they seem to put it all they seem to broadcast it in scotland so i think i'd maybe heard something early kind of rap music on john peel but then when i found this national fresh this mike allen show it was just like what the fuck is this mm-hmm. it was like a whole fucking like you know, a whole show of this kind of music. I didn't even know what the fuck it was called. You know, but obviously the terminology they were kind of using. Mike Allen, like, I'd recommend anybody to go on YouTube and look at look at his show, listen to his shows. He's very much of that old style DJing, how he talks, but it seemed it just seemed to really fit the 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 hip hop, the earlier hip hop and electro sort of sounds that um, were were kind of starting to come out at, at that time. So bear it, I think we're looking at like I'm thinking about 82 around 80. So we moved to Dunfermline in 82. I'm thinking about 83, 84 around then. But I don't know if I saw the film Breakdance came out. I can't even remember how how I used to go to the, the cinema on a regular basis, um, as we all did back then, when there was less things to do. Going to the cinema was a regular occurrence for children growing up. It was a big thing. We went to the cinema on a Friday or get a and It was a kind of a new thing as well, wasn't it? Like, as in all the big blockbusters back then. And- yeah, no, definitely. I mean, a, you know, a huge, like, like I said, with the technology, you know, films were coming out left, right and centre. I mean, you're, you, know, all, you know, all big classic films that came out in the early, you know, the 80s. Um, but break breakdance the movie or breaking as it's called. I think the original the original name is breaking, but it's called it was marketed in Europe as breakdance. I went to see that 
at, at the Odeon Cinema in Edinburgh, on Clark Street in Edinburgh, which is actually closed now, but it's been closed for years, but it's actually going to be opening back up seemingly. I used to go through on the train and stay at my grand's at the weekends sometimes, and I'd go to the cinema, and I went to see Breakdance uh, at the Odeon on a Saturday morning, and I, I, I think out of everything that had happened previously, the, I mean, get the tape deck was, you know, uh, getting the, the little Ferguson tape player was good, and the Walkman, and even the drum pad and stuff like that. But when I went to see Breakdance the movie, that fucking blew my head open. It was just like, I was watching for the first time, obviously we're hearing scratching and tunes and stuff like that, but I didn't know what the fuck, what is scratching? Mm-hmm. I mean, these noises in these tunes that I'm listening to on Mike Allen's National Fresh, but nobody knows what it is. Ah, uh, or how it's created though. Maybe talking about it, but what the fuck, what's scra- what is scratching? <laughs> so, yeah. In Breakdance, the movie, uh, there is a, a, a there's there's a couple of battle scenes in a place called the Radiotron. So the Radio Radiotron, which I subsequently found out years later, was a community center which was in uh, I think it was in East LA. It was actually a real community center which was pretty much used for disadvantaged children in the area. It was um, so people used to go along who were into spray art and breakdance and music, and just a generally, I think, a community place for children to kind of hang out that wasn't, you know, keeping them away from the gangs in LA, because yeah. LA, obviously, we're all, you know, about, um, you know, uh, Compton and places, you know, places like gang, gang culture in, in LA was huge in the 80s. I mean, it's been huge since the 60s. A lot of people don't know the background of all the Crips and the Bloods and, you know, it goes way, way back to the 60s. Um, but one of the scenes in the Radiotron, there, uh, it's Ice-T on stage. So Ice-T was a regular at the Radiotron. Um, there's some really funny video footage of Ice-T breakdancing online that she'd look up uh, on YouTube. It's really funny. Um, but he was an up-and-coming rapper at the time. But the DJ uh, in the scene is a DJ called Chris the Glove Taylor. And this is the first time that I saw a set of Technics and also saw Scratch it and thinking, mm-hmm. that's how they're making that sound. Yep. He, he's doing that by touching the record and pulling the record back and forth. But the music that's in the break-in, I mean, that album, the Breakdance album for me is what, I mean, I could, I've listened to it hundreds and hundreds of times over the years it was actually what I think I eventually got it as a cassette remember I used to go about my BMX and listen and, and, and another Walkman that I got and used to listen to that album so much but I remember coming out of the audience and being like that is what I'm going to be doing yep. that is what I'm going to do I'm going to do what he's doing I'm going to be a DJ Excel Podcast that film, you know, you mentioned breakdancing and all, it's kind of like all, all these things, it's kind of like, it became your thing, you know, like, your thing is like a youth movement, you know, seeing yeah. shit like that, it related, like even that film, it was like something that you could relate to, like kids, music, this mad thing, breakdancing, and it's filtering through with all your other sort of, no clubs, but, you know, breakdancing, BMX, and that was kind of our internet, that was the hub. Where all you, you know, your pals go together to talk yeah, about what no. you were into and, and share what you were into, and that yeah, film was always like, how many people's left there going? I want to be a break dancer. I want to be a spray painter. I want to be a, de- you know, I want to be a. Everything was in that film that was hundred percent relevant, yeah. hugely impactful. When you go online and read 
in particular YouTube, if you read the comments about things, you know, you'll see similar people like, like myself saying, oh, I was so inspired by it that I went yep. on. To, like you said, not just, you know, maybe they may be film, film directors, book writers or... Aye, aye, right, across the border. It seemed to just open up this, like, wow, you know, what, you know, this is, this is amazing. I mean, the soundtrack, the soundtrack is really, really good for, for breakdance. I mean, breaking... Um, there's a lot, a lot of you know people will, will say oh breakdance is a bit what uh, commercial whereas the film Beach Street which is mm-hmm. another well known breakdance film which is based in New York that was more people will say oh that's a bit more credible because LA and New York are uh, back then in particular very, poles apart in so many different ways California's you know it's a big sunshine state and good weather Everybody dresses differently. You know, I mean, you've obviously got Venice Beach and all that, which features in the film. And, you know, a lot of people, um, prob- you know, a lot of people do know, but one of the scenes in Venice Beach where there's a, there's a kind of, there's, it's like people who used to do break dancing, which I never, I, I did try it, but I wasn't very good at it. But um, people would take a ghetto blaster and go and take a bit of lino or a massive bits of cardboard and go somewhere and break dance out in the street. And one of the scenes in Venice Beach, uh, it's actually got uh, Jean Claude Van Damme's dancing in one of the scenes. <laughs> it's the cringiest dance ever, isn't it? Yeah, you know, he's span- just hanging about trying to be famous, isn't he? Yeah, a big spandex, like black, you know, tight spandex outfit, you know, cla- clapping and dancing, but everybody's Aye. having a, a, a really good time. But um, the the New York scene was very much very different, and it's funny because people will, people slag break that people who think that the purest sound hip hop is New York, the Bronx, and Brooklyn, and Queens, and stuff like that. And I suppose in some ways it is, but LA, which is where the electro sound came from, that's where that was developed. And whilst it still had rapping. When you look at people like the World Class Wrecking Crew, which was Dr. Dre's first uh, production um, and crew, you know, how they dressed, like, bearing in mind the 80s as well, there was quite a lot of glam. Uh, they were all dressed as doctors and all that, so he got his name, wasn't it? But it's not that, it, it was the, the big sequin jackets, uh-huh. you know, big kind of shoulder pads and stuff like that. So a lot, you know, New York, you know, people who, who are down with the more kind of what they would determine the cooler side of hip hop frowned upon that look, say, and I think Dr. Dre and all that, they would say, oh, we can't believe we dressed like that. Uh, but then they're, they're get, probably getting inspired by like, Parliament and P Funk and all that kind of stuff, you know, like yeah, I mean, it was a, that, that, psychedelic I mean, that's a, like rock or whatever you wanted to. Yeah, funk. I mean, there was the LA, and I, I think I think a lot of a, a lot of that comes down to the weather. I think mm. the weather. Aye. Just, Aye. You know, I mean, look, at I mean, it's been nice in Scotland for the last few days, and I know that I'm, you know, I think we're all different when it's sunny. You know, yep. we're just a bit more buoyant, and I think if you live somewhere like LA in California and you had somewhere like Venice Beach, I mean, you look at it back then. I mean, I would have still never been. To, I've been to New York three times, but I've never been to LA. Um, you know, when you look back and you see it, you know, every, girls are going about roller skates, and but everybody is ripped to death. Mm-hmm. Beach and looks great, you know what I mean? And then LA's always kind of had that, whereas New York's always been a bit more kind of gritty. Do, do mean, you know, baseball caps on, baseball cap backwards, and a bit more kind of, um, you know, it's uh, 
more of that kind of homeboy kind of style rather than the flamboyant LA sort of stuff. Although they did get there eventually. I mean, they did change when the gang culture and all that started to uh, infiltrate more mm-hmm. of the music side of things and stuff like that. But um, going back to your question about the turntables, so after seeing Breakdance and seeing Christy Glove Taylor on the decks, I, I didn't even have no idea what a set of Technics were. I didn't even know they were called Technics decks. I just saw mm-hmm. these things on the screen and him doing that, using the mixer. And you know, I mean, it's very basic scratching, but you know, the the, the some of the tunes are really good tunes that were out in that film. Um, I then again through Stu uh, Allen's National Fresh show became aware of a label called Street Sounds. Um, and I remember them talking about it. I mean, I didn't have... I bought the Breakdance cassette. I remember that was the first cassette that I bought that had any, like, kind of rap music on it because the, the music that's in uh, Breakdance doesn't... It's not all rap music. Yeah, it's quite across the genre, isn't it? Jack Akan, um, um What's our big famous... Um, Feel For You. Is no, that that, no, no, um, ain't nobody. Ain't nobody, aye. Did they I mean, I get what, mixed up? Was that Endless Love on Breakdance the movie cassette? It was a quite a, a ballad kind of thing, or am I getting mixed up with another? No, I'm not not sure. But um, but ain't nobody is on it, uh, and that I'm obviously a huge, like massive Shaka Khan track, mm-hmm. and it's a very it's a really good scene in the film when they use that. Um, is Kraftwerk on that as well? He does the thing with the brush. Am I getting mixed up with another breakdancing film? So, no, no, so Turbo, that scene with Turbo outside the shop with the brush, with the with the, the moonwalk and stuff uh-huh. like that. Uh, right. So that, 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 that scene's in breakdance. So that's... And that's uh, Kraftwerk, one of the... Kraftwerk Tour de France. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, yeah, so I came across them talking about this street sounds in the compilation. It was like, they were talking about it, it was a compilation. I mean, again, I didn't really like compilation albums and stuff like that. We weren't familiar with these kind of things back then. I don't think there was really many of them anyway. The singles, sing, the 12 singles were put seven inch, then the 12 inch single became more popular. You know, it was like extended. I mean, when you think back to those times, I mean, 12 inches would be pretty much just extended versions of the seven inch single. Mm-hmm. One of really remixes. Yeah. They just have longer intros and you know <laughs> big long sections. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I was living in Dunfermline at the time. I thought, right, I'm going to go up. It was a Saturday morning. I'm going to go up to John Menzies in Dunfermline, the other music department, and see if I can find the street sounds. This electro, so street sounds electro, hip hop and electro. Uh, that's what the albums were called. So I've gone in there, gone down. I mean, I'm expecting to walk into this place and say, they're going to know have this here. This is Dunfermline we're in, pal. This is no, uh, this is no London. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, I, and I, so I asked somebody at the counter, I'm looking for this Street Sounds Electro, Hip Hop Electro. And they said, oh, if you go and look over there in this section, and I found, and here was a tape, Street Sounds Hip Hop Electro, volume 13. I remember picking it up and being like, this is almost like Willy Wonka golden uh-huh. fucking tip material. To me, I'm like, I cannot believe this. They've got this music here in the sh- in John Menzies in Dunfermline. And how the fuck did I get one to 12? <laughs> that was just like, yeah. So I, was like, right. so I remember 
going all the way home and putting it on. And that again was just another moment of like, oh, this, you know, this is just like, this is, this, this is more what, what, what I'm into this, whatever this is. Aye, Hip-hop electro. So obviously becoming more familiar with the hearing the terms on the radio, the word hip-hop, electro, rap. I mean, I tend to call it rap music because hip-hop, which a lot of people, I know people say hip-hop music, but hip-hop is the is the overarching umbrella for the culture, which covers everything under, like breakdancing, graffiti, beatboxing, rapping, mm-hmm. you know, you know Hip hop's the, the the brand name, but people will say hip hop music. But I would always say I'm into rap music back then, because because that's what people said. Oh, it's rap music. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was rapping, rapping electro. So Street Sounds Electro albums were predominantly kind of electro sounding rather than more it seemed to be more west coast sounding so i was very much influenced by that by those cassettes um and that tape i used to listen to that again on my bmx on the walkman all the time um so through that in the inlay of the cassette you it said that they had a mate like they had a newsletter that you had to you i think you sent away like stamps or something or you paid two pound or something and you could be added to a mailing list and you got a newsletter a fortnightly newsletter and it was called rumors so i applied for that and i got the first newsletter and this was just an a3 sheet folded like in an a4 two double-sided and it basically had all information about i think release schedules for the for street sounds charts maybe some adverts. I did have a cop- copy, but I lost it over the years, uh, which is, um, I'm pissed off about that because in the on the back page, there was a classified ad section and it was people kind of selling records, but looking for um, like DJs. I think they were trying to make a little, um, you know, people would put in, the, oh, we're looking to make a rap crew here, blah, 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 get in touch kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So... I thought I'm going to write to these to the, the, these people to ask how do you become a DJ? How do you become a scratch mix DJ? That's mm-hmm. what I was going to be, a scratch mix DJ. Wrote to them and they wrote me a letter back, which I've still got the letter that they sent back to me, basically saying you could uh, look for local crews and um, what you would need to get. I said, what would you need to get? And they told me, like a set of Technics, I think they said the set of Technics turntables, they recommended a GLI mixer, which was a popular mixer back then. But they also said you could also put an ad in the classified section. So I basically wrote, I I, I don't know if that cost me anything, but I put it in it, the next edition. And it was basically looking to learn how to be a scratch mix DJ, blah, blah, blah. Again, I'm living in Dunfermline. It's, you know, you would think, is there going to be other people around? You had your number on it. Anyway, this guy contacted me, um, funnily enough, who lived in Fife as well. No. <laughs> he, lived in a, he lived in a place called, we know, we know when I was talking about these back out places in Fife, these little pockets, mining towns. He lived in a place called Collinsborough, which is not far from Leaven. It's a tiny wee village. 
And this guy who lived there had been getting into the music at the, at the, at the same as me. The same ages as you? He was, I think he's I think he's two or three year, years older than me. Right. A guy called a guy called David. He said so. He phoned me, and he said, "I'm uh, I've got a little kind of setup. You should come through." Right, that's fucking blowing your mind straight away, isn't it? I'm like, fucking hell, man. This guy's gone. He's got. He, he wasn't even. I don't think at the time where he was clear. I think he said he didn't have any techniques, but he had a some kind of setup. So I got the bus from Dunfermline to Kirkcaldy. He met me in Kirkcaldy, and whilst we were in Kirkcaldy, he we went to a record shop that was there, which is no longer there now, called Sleeves. Mm-hmm. Now, Sleeves was a popular store back then. I don't know if they had them elsewhere in Scotland or if it was a Fife store, but he had been shopping in the Sleeves, and this was the first time that I got to see albums and 12 inches in the music in a shop to buy. But in a rack for that style? Yeah, he had a rap music section in the shop and he'd been coming here and buying these. I mean, they were imports, they weren't were really cheap. I mean, he, I was again at like, I must have been 14. No, in fact, 12, 13, 12 or 13. 84, 85, so it's around that time. Um, so anyway, we then got the bus from Kirkcaldy to leaving and then another bus for leaving or a bus to Collinsburg to Collinsborough or Collinsbury, I think they pronounce it. So we've gone into his bedroom and he's got a record player and a tape deck and a mixer. And we've been like, so how's you know how does this work? He this guy was a trade he was training to be an electrician. He had worked out so this mixer that he'd bought was a Tandy Realistic mixer. Everybody got one of these. These were standard, box standard mixers. Don't know if you got one yourself. There was a little black mixer. Mm-hmm. It was like a four-channel mixer with the tiniest crossfader. You got Tandy was like a, the Maplins of its day back in the 80s. Um, it was a, a general kind of electrical store where you could buy components and little bits of kit and you know stuff like that. CB radios and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, but they sold mixer. They sold this mixer, um, realistic mixer. I think it was about hundred quid. He'd worked out if he he'd taken the back off the turntable and wired it, got the cable that went to the speakers out and attached it to the one of the phono lines on the mixer as a ch- in channel, and done the same with uh, what was a portable cassette, double cassette player with removable speed, one of those ones that had the unit and you could slide off the speakers at the side. That's right, aye, aye. You could move it or you could have the speakers like that or you could, you know, it's kind of like a wee get a boombox, get a yeah. blaster thing. He'd done the same with that, taking the, taking the, undone one of the speaker cable, the connection at the back and put it again. Now I'm not talking about putting the phono lead, lead into the socket. He had wrapped the wire, the copper wire, ruined the actual phono connection. Mm-hmm. Put the headphones on, put a tape on, and be able to play through the headphones and touch the record. And so play playing it. a cassette and then scratch over the top it with one deck? Aye. But I, I love that necessity. He's figured out how he could do it because the technology was unaffordable or unattainable, and he's fucking developed that for him. Definitely. So I'm, I'm thinking, 
Oh, this man. guy's Buck, this guy's Buck Rogers. This is amazing, man. He's playing, you know, and, and I mean, this record player that he had was a standard hi-fi record deck, like a, a system, a, a hi-fi system where a cassette deck and a radio tuner yeah. that on generally people had in the home. So I think it, I can't remember whether it was, it, it would be a belt, belt drive. So the belt drive for, I mean, obviously, you know, maybe people know not know what belt drive is. So the old turntable systems used to be a rubber band that went from one motor attached to the main uh, cog underneath, which spun the record. So when you touched it, it kind of stopped. So you had to be really, really light in what you were doing. Yeah. Now, bear in mind, I had no scratching ability or anything like that but just to be able to hear he do can you have it wasn't coming at the speakers you had to have the headphones on and play the tape and muck around with the track over the top of it very basic and and and, and uh, primitive in a sense but amazing at the same time yep. you know, just to have that ability to do that so i was like ah, right this is i'm getting i'm going to get something like this i didn't have i only had a cassette player my grand the one that my grand bought me I then got the mixer. I convinced my mum to get me this mixer from Tandy. I think they were a hundred pounds, which was quite a lot back then. And then I got a, I think it was a Sanyo, a cheap Sanyo from um, the Edinburgh. Used to have all these kind of like Alibaba's kind of caves shops where you could go in and buy non-branded tech, like ghetto blaster things for. <laughs> imported stuff uh, didn't even care what that brand aye, is San Yesho Hitiba you know a mixed <laughs> hybrid versions uh. so I got this tape deck got the mixer and my mum's friends gave me a, a, uh, gave me a hi-fi system he came through to my house and he set the same system up for me in my bedroom in Dunfermline brilliant and I was just like I was made up with, but he was like I'm saving up to buy the to, to buy these, so I think through him he was like so the, the turntables. Whether it was through him or we obviously became aware, there's a brand that's called Technics. These are the other daddies. These are what you need to get, but <clears throat> said very expensive. Do you know what I mean? So I wasn't working. I was I was still at school. He was he was uh, he was I think he he was in an apprenticeship as an electrician. He would say, I'm saving up for these. So the day came when he had enough money to buy them. And I went with him through to Glasgow. He bought them from, um, uh, I don't know if it was Richard Sounds in Glasgow. Or, I was going to or, say Richard Sounds, probably next to 23rd Precinct or? No, it was one, it might have been, I don't know if it was a sound control in Glasgow as well. Did they have a sound control in Glasgow? Aye. Uh, it was in Jamaica Street, kind of at the bottom of the town. Like just, just like at a bridge near a bridge. Aye, if you come out Central Station, you go down to your right, away from the city almost. Aye, aye, that's I where. Got, he definitely got for there. I went with them, and and he bought, he'd ordered them and bought them, and we carried them back to the state. I remember walking heavy as well, man. One one turntable, twelve hundred. He got the twelve hundreds, the silver ones, carrying them back to them to. Glasgow to Edinburgh and I had to leave did I go but I didn't go back with him for five I think I went as far as Dunfermline and he went on with the turntables and I was like when am I coming through man uh -huh. I mean when am I coming back to your house to you know see this 
And the first time, I didn't have any records at this point. I didn't, well, other than the albums and stuff that my mum had and uh, like a, a significant seven inch collection. Um, but I started seeing this girl and she'd been buying 12 inch, 12 inch, 12 inch remixes. And she, I told her, I'm going to make you a mixtape. I'm like, give me your records that you've got. So she gave me Erasure, Debbie Gibson, Taylor Dane, and uh, I can't remember who did that song, I Love My Radio. I, I can't remember who sung that song. Anyway, took these through, and I went through to his house, and I actually made a mixtape. I actually still think I've got the mixtape, I think I, I oh, actually yeah. got it. So, I remember, so we were looking at like, how do you get the things to match up? Obviously, never having never touched Technics turntables before, understand the pitch control. Oh, or yeah, anything. Yeah. Like, I remember just being in all like going to his bedroom and seeing the pair of Technics turntables set with a mixer. What I saw in breakdance, somebody's now got it in their in their bedroom. You're in the future, man, aren't you? You're just looking at this thing and Oh, you know, it was definitely, you know, way, way, way ahead of its time in terms of, you know, the the um the technical aspect. Um but he said, well, what we need to do is we need to find out which tune mixes with this tune. And we're looking for B BP the BPM. So at that time, a lot of people don't know this, but DJ magazine used to be called Jocks way back in the night in the 80s it was called jocks magazine there was two big magazines around there prior prior to that most people would have bought grown up what smash hits number one magazine you know jackie for the girls and all that kind of stuff like that but the music press you had melody maker which was a big paper that you got again that sound control the firm i used to go and pick up these things and and used to re, you know read about you know stuff he was going on the music and so Jocks magazine would have charts, and in the charts they would have the BPMs of the tracks. These were for disc jockeys to mm -hmm. understand, you know, um, what the BPMs of your tracks are for for playing or mixing. Prior to that, I mean, you got to remember that back then clubs didn't have Technics turntables. You're talking about the 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 disco era, the early club, you know, the late, mid-80s, you know, the 60s, the 70s, you know, all DJs who were DJs. Before the Technics, I remember seeing a console in my grand's catalogue, and it was a DJ console thing for mobile discos. And I nearly convinced, I thought, I'm going to get one of these. This must be what I need to get. This, which were just ultimately two record players mm -hmm. joined in a unit, I think the mixer, I think it was faders doing here on a panel doing in front. And a microphone maybe and some disco lights and or something. Up, I, I like, you could get, I remember seeing, I'm going to get rope lights and get, you know, you could buy a, a unit thing for it and all yep. that. So glad, thankfully I never got, I never got that. Um, but, so anyway, with the BPMs, I remember doing the tape and said, right, this track goes with this one. And I'm actually scratching Taylor Dane. Uh, prove your love on that mixtape. Actually, scratching it for the first time. I have def. I think I've got the cassette, and it's actually not that bad. <laughs> so when I've what I I then was able to do with my own setup, I did to get Technics um, for quite some time after that. But what I did do, or oh, prior to me getting that setup, I get got given what's a standard BSR turntable, which is a little. There were 
they were quite popular in the seventies. They were it was like a little uh, cog. It wasn't a direct drive. It wasn't a belt driven. It was cog driven little record player that had like a black. It was like a black case. Somebody gave me that. It had the control for 33, 45, and 78 for playing it. It was a straight arm, turn, turn, portable turntable. I got that. I had that. And I remember buying the first, I think I got my first 12 inch, which was um, DJ Cheese and uh, DJ Cheese and Word of Mouth, um, Coast to Coast, it's called. And through Jocks Magazine, uh, I saw them advertising about slip mats, and, and I remember saying, "Oh, I'm going to get one of these slip mat things." So I bought one, a Jocks Jocks slip mat, for about a tenner or something. But prior to that, I'd I used the sleeve. I cut the I put the twelve inch sleeve and drew a pen around it and cut the sleeve out into a round disc twelve inch. Did you know that with Grish Push paper? Did you know going to that one? Eventually, I did go on to using that, but put, I remember putting using that as a slip mat and using this deck, this little deck, and practicing scratching on this little portable turntable. And just, I mean, you had to lift up the record. You had to lift up the side of it. If you you couldn't, you couldn't really touch it as such. You had to lift, like, kind of almost bend the twelve up a wee bit to 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 scratch like that. Um, but anyway, so once I got the once I got that set up again, I was able to learn very much basic I mean they didn't even really have the sounds and stuff like that the, like the scratch sounds I mean you would hear sounds in tracks and you think well where are they getting these what's the sound that they're using mm-hmm. so ultimately you would just be using any kind of vocal a bit and just just kind of just mucking around man you know and and again with the fader I mean as I said that that that, that realistic mixer had the, the smallest fader that I've ever worked on and if you can scratch learn to scratch on that mixer you would let scratch on any mixer because it yep. was like a, a tiny little thing that you held <laughs> you know it's not like the day with a big button uh-huh. you know um, so anyway after the, I had that system for quite some quite some years my mum was a single parent and my mum while she was in high level management she ended up um, managing um uh, Thomas Cook. So Lund Polly, she was a manager for Lund Polly in the Kingsgate Shopping Centre in Dunfermline first. Um, subsequently, she booked Stuart Adamson's summer, most of his holidays. Um, so we eventually moved back to Edinburgh. Um, by which time, I was, I was having quite a quite a, quite a lot of behavioural issues. Um, As every teen did. Yeah, you know. Um, and just... Uh, I was just having problems with my mum. I was, you know, clashing with her. You know, hormones. I wasn't. My schooling was all over this, all over the place. So we moved from Dunfermline to a place called Pennycook, which is just on the outskirts of Edinburgh. It's about twelve miles outside outside Edinburgh, um, and that was uh, spring nineteen eighty-eight. It was after this Easter break. We moved in the Easter break. And I went to started going to Pennycook High School, and by I think I started in the August, and by September I got suspended. I'd never been suspended or or anything. I mean, I mean, got been in trouble at school and stuff like that. But my behavioural sort of issues started to kind of escalate, and I subsequently ended up in care for three months. 
So, um, and that was quite a troublesome time for me uh, on a personal level, as as it was for my mum and everybody else in the family. Um, basically, just got put into the care system, and um, one of my saving graces was that I had by this point I had a little cassette carry case and I had a whole mixture of cassettes that were all predominantly recorded Mike Allen National Fresh shows my breakdance tape my hip hop electro I had, a, I had a few of the collection by this point and uh, you, you, I took the stereo I took my ghetto blasters the stereo that my grandma bought me into the home and that kind of saw me through what was a, a hugely difficult and challenging period for me as a young you know I was 14 at the time mm-hmm. so I got out, I got out, I think, in at the end of November in 88. And um, I remember being like, talking to my mum and being like, wanting to get turntable, get the turntable. So anyway, my mum decided to buy me my first Technics turntable. So she bought it from a place called Hi-Fi Corner, which was in Rose Street in Edinburgh. I think the deck was I'm not really sure how I see various people talking about prices of Technics decks back then. I'm sure she maybe paid something in the region of maybe three, four hundred pounds. It's a big like ask that. as well, isn't it, man? <clears throat> you um, know, getting that kind of present. But um, I, again, I think your mom's seen this is the thing that's kind of possibly keeping you out of trouble and focus your energies on, isn't it? 100%, 100%. Um, and I think. Um, you know, I mean, it could have been so different. I mean, I could have been a drummer. She could have bought. I could. She could have bought me a drum kit now, and I was very passionate about that. And myself, I believed that I could be a drummer, and I wanted to. to, to had a desire to be a drummer, but once I discovered the DJ inside of things, that you know, the drumming, I've actually got a drum kit now. It's not mine. It's one of my daughters. So I actually do go and have a play on it now and again. It's actually at my mum's. Um, but so I got one Technics deck for that Christmas after coming out out of the care system, and so I had so I now had the Technics deck, the realistic mixer, and the hi-fi the turntable. So now I had the ability to play music. Uh, obviously, the, the hi-fi didn't have any pitch control, whereas the Technics did. I then develop, started to work on developing my scratching more. I mean, because ultimately for me, I was going to be, uh, a, you know, this is what I was going to be. I'm going to be a scratch mix, a hip-hop DJ. That was what my main goal was and desire was to be a hip-hop scratch mix DJ in a rap group or something like that. So I was able to hone my skills on the one turntable, scratching and stuff like that. I'm basically just to- self-taught. Mm-hmm. Like there is any internet back then, man. I don't know. And it's a small scene to actually try and find other people. You were lucky through that fanzine that you met that other guy. But Yeah, I mean, I mean, hugely... Uh, you know, beneficial knowing David um, and meeting him, and um, and he was he was really good on the decks as well. You know, and very very, very much very much into the scratching techniques and learning stuff like that. Again, we didn't you didn't know like I mean, when you hear scratching sounds, you think right, how is it? So you you know, and again, without the sounds that people were using in tracks, you're just having to use a, like a vocal bit or a drum or a snare drum or something like mm-hmm. that, and just you know do something with it and you know and i mean do something very basic like you know you could you get like this but nothing like 
you know, you know, like, you know, you started like this and then say, well, I can get my hand to do this and, you know, and then I move it a wee bit, you know, you just, as you're going along, you're developing your own techniques and um, style. So I then got, my mum bought me the second turntable the following, I don't know if it was the following Christmas or before, I think it might have been before. And then I was, that was me. I was set up at that point with that mixer uh, and my technic and my technics decks. Um, so I'd, I'd I'd got some some tunes prior to that. I'd got some albums. My first hip hop albums that I got were um, LL Cool J's radio album, um, Eric B and Rakim Payton full album. Um, Public Enemy, Yo Bum Rush the Show, and um, uh, I got a Schoolie D album, Schoolie D's first album. Um, but just prior to that, uh, just to skip back a bit, in 1987, through again through through National Fresh, Mike Allen's National Fresh show, I discovered the Beastie Boys. It heard the Beastie Boys. And through going to sound control and deferment and picking up the music, free music press, uh, I found out that the Beastie Boys were going to be doing this tour called the License to Ill Tour mm-hmm. in 1987. And they were coming to Glasgow. And I was like, I'm going to this. And I mean, I was underage. I think I was only 14. I was 14 at the time. I think I might have just been turned 14. That was in May. I had, yeah, the May 1987 that concert was. But you had to be accompanied by an adult, I think, if you were under 16 to go to, the, to go to that concert. I mean, I'd never... Have I been to Glasgow before that? I don't know if I'd ever even been... Have I been to Glasgow? I don't think I'd even been through to Glasgow. Anyway, my uncle said he would take me. So my uncle drove through... Still living in Dunfermline at this point. My uncle drove through... He lived in Pennock in, in Edinburgh... He drove through and we went to the Barrowlands to see the Beastie Boys, 1987, and we went in and we watched it. For me, I think Breakdance, the impact of watching Breakdance in 84, this was superseded by going to this concert and hearing music that I'd heard on the radio on National Fresh getting played through the sound system in the Barrowlands. And I remember being oh man, you know, I know this, I know these tunes. I've heard, you know, I've either heard them on the radio and playing because the warm-up for the Beastie Boys that night was a guy called Davey D, who was um, uh, signed to, to Def Jam Records at the time, but he was the tour DJ for the Licensed to L 1987 tour, which toured the UK. I think it toured the UK. Now, America, Europe, and the UK, and they went all around the world, I think, with that tour initially for that first album. But um, I know. I think. Did you say you you had gone to that concert? Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, I, it wasn't just being uh, in all of the music and the stage. It was like looking about and seeing all these people that looked at the. You know, it was like it looked apart. They were wearing fucking kangles and baseball hats and oh, cool t-shirts, and you're just going, "These cunts, where are these cool folk come from? Where the fuck?" You know, like start yeah. to question your own fucking what you're wearing and I want to look yeah. like that guy man and, and, and there's hundreds thousands of people here yeah, I mean, and I've seen yeah I mean people people who were um, I spoke to quite a few people over the years who who were actually there and I mean, probably a similar kind of um, uh, feelings 
and emotions for them personally, thinking, oh, this this is amazing. You know, that these people when you when you especially when I lived in the film and I don't know this other guy in Fife and we're like, does other people like this in Scotland? Where yeah, are they? I know. Got to them. But you went to the Barrowlands to that to that gig. I mean, and I always talk about I mean, I I love Glasgow as a city and for me going to the Barrowlands, I mean, the Barrowlands holds, I mean, it's, it's so significant for me in my musical journey to have been able to go to that concert, hear these tunes, and obviously see the Beastie Boys on their first ever tour. Mm-hmm. And because of what happened that night, because I don't know if you remember, there was trouble. Aye, I, I was just sure if it was that or the Def Jam tour, there was trouble with that as well. It was a bit no, shady. There was tr- so, so there was trouble at the Beastie <laughs> Boys concert. The Beastie, What happened to the Beastie Boys concert? Because in the last couple of years, the live recording from that became available online. The Beastie Boys concert um, was uh, hugely significant um, and following that, the 1987 Def Jam tour as well. Mm-hmm. So for me, <clears throat> as I said, I mean, I thought it was going to be like the Terminator X of Scotland. That's what uh-huh. I was I'm going to be, this is, I'm 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 a hip-hop DJ, you know, I mean, my music, my, you know, that's the life bloody me, uh, you know, and it is my music, real musical roots. I mean, The Police, Big Country, Adaman, and even ABBA and Mike Oldfield, Blue Peter are all part of my journey, do you know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. hip-hop in particular for me is like, that's almost like my real foundation musically that I, that I really started to build myself up from and from a DJ perspective. So, um, as we got into the 90s, um, it's funny, funny. People used to say to me uh, all the time, "You think you're black," and I used to say, "How's that?" And they say, "Because of the, the music that you listen to." Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of my pals will now cite that. Oh, if it wasn't for you, we would never have gotten into all this music and stuff like that. I mean, I was a way ahead of the curve, mate. You know, you're, al- you're also the weirdo at <laughs> the friends group, aren't it? He's I think he's a fucking black guy for America, or you, aye, you know, aye, I, I, it's you like I know back then being the DJ or being into music or whatever, you were kind of the outcast or the weirdo at school or whatever, weren't you? I suppose. But, I suppose. I mean, go so fast as to say weirdo. Well, can, you know I, what I mean, but it was like everybody else was fucking into uh, Bruce Springsteen or Iron Maiden, and, and it was only a kind of select few that were into. I, I would say hip hop, <laughs> dance music, culture. But you know ultimately, what? it's funny talking about the hip hop, hip hop and rap music and stuff like that. I mean, initially, when you when you look back to the to the sort of late seventies and when when the music was coming about, it was you know they talked about oh this is just a fad. Mm-hmm. This is not going to last very long. This music. Yep. I mean, look now, hip hop music is the biggest selling music out of all musical styles in the world. That's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Over about everything, rock music, jazz, yep. yep. hip hop's the biggest seller. You know, to come from where it's come to to where it is now, it's phenomenal. Whilst I don't particularly like a lot of today's kind of rap music, mumble rap, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I'm a bit of a purist in that sense. In that sense that I mean, I've always liked my my beats quite hard, quite r- rough and rugged kind of things, um, style wise. But um, so, uh, you know, for me. To, to continue DJing I was thinking right, I'm going to be in a, a, a crew I actually got one of my mates and we're going to start right we're, this is what we're going to do I'm going to write lyrics you're going to rap and I'm going to be a, I'm going to be the DJ mm-hmm. and I remember I was doing it in, in my mum's <laughs> my mum's in my, my bedroom at my mum's um, doing this and one of my mates that still talks we can still recite the rhymes that we actually yeah. wrote um, but so come 89 
you're at the crossroads, aren't you? My mates were like, we're start, we're going to this thing. It's on a Friday night. It's it's a disco. I was like, disco? Like, yeah, I up the tune. It's Buster Brown's under 18s disco. Now, Buster Brown's, uh, for those that don't know, was a, a a very, very popular nightclub in Edinburgh. Uh, during the 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 seventies in particular, and the eighties, um, it was where all the big stars went: David Bowie, uh, Blondie, Debbie Harry, um, all the big stars. All the footballers, Hearts and Hibs used to go there. Sunday nights at, at Buster Brown's over twenty ones were massively popular. It's huge. It's, it's so. Um, but my mate said, "We're going to this under 18s disco on a Friday." I said, "I'm not going to a disco." That's not for me. Because yeah, you're hip hop man, you're street, you're you're cool. I'm not going to have a disco. They're like, oh, you should come. There's loads of tidy birds there. And I'm like, <laughs> All right. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't can like it. So anyway, they 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 said you should come along. Come and come and check it out anyway. So I went the following. I think I think the following week, and. I remember not being like, I mean, it was all right. This was the first time that I'd been in a, in a, in a, in a nightclub environment, I think uh, it was. So Buster Browns used to be uh, on Market Street, which is, out the, if we come out the back of Waverley Station, um, that's Market Street. So the front, obviously, is Princess Street side and the back street is Market Street. So the club was just on that street there. Uh, it's now an art gallery called the Fruit Market Gallery. Um but some one of my mate, what, a guy for Pennycook was there, and he said, "Oh, I'm going to go and ask the DJ if you can get a shot." But know that he's like, "I'm not going to records, but I've just come to the night to see what this under 18s disco." Mm-hmm. Now, now they were right. There was a lot of tidy lasses there, so you know, I was thinking, "Oh, this, you know, but you know, like nice looking lasses." And so he's gone away and spoke to the DJ, and he said, "Right, come over and speak to him." So went over and spoke to the to the DJ, a guy DJ called Grant Duff, and he said, um, "What to do is if you come next week and bring your records and come before the doors open. I think about an, an, hour, an hour before the doors open. I think that I think the under 18s went on from something like seven till ten or something like that. So following week, got my records. This is all. This is this is ultimately an audition that I'm going to, and I remember being." quite apprehensive and anxious about thinking oh man this you know but I'd already had uh, uh, built up a kind of skill set in the bedroom anyway mm-hmm. you know I was doing by this time I had breakbeat albums you know prefer instrumentals I was mixing da- different tunes over things and stuff like that so I was quite I was you know well oiled in what I was doing at that point it'd been about a, a whole year of practicing in the bedroom so I could mix tunes together yep so I've gone to the Buster Browns and went in before the club opened and he put me on the decks and they just said, right, play. <laughs> so he stood and watched me, came off. I actually met, I remember playing this break beat. Uh, it was actually the Eamon, the Eamon drum break on a Norman Cook album called All Star Breaks. And I remember trying to do something and the break beat ran out. And I remember being like, oh, fuck. Anyway, he just said, right, you're you're going to be playing later on that night. And I was like, really? He's like, aye, aye, you're going to be playing. 
it's probably the first time he's ever seen somebody technical. You know, like if you're doing all the mixing and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, right. no, definitely. So, um, so anyway, so I ended up playing at Buster Brown's. Uh, I, it, it was ultimately. I wouldn't go so far to say it was a kind of residency, but I was playing there on a regular basis. I was playing there weekly. It was going. It was on every Friday night, so I would go in and I would. Grant Duff was the main DJ. Now, just to to talk about Buster Brown's the Over Twenty Ones, the Over Twenty Ones DJ is a guy called was a guy called Ronnie McEwen, who is Les McEwen from the Bay City Rollers' brother. He was the first DJ in Edinburgh to DJ on Technics. They were the first people club to have them installed in a club in Edinburgh. So they were kind of ahead of everybody mm-hmm. else because you were coming from the 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 eighties in the mid eighties late eighties was kind of still a bit of a run on from the disco era. The DJs were still yeah everybody come uh-huh. on on the floor you know that kind of stuff you know and, and playing playing tunes there was no mixing. The DJ was a comp kind of uh, it was a mic in between a mix wasn't it? It was like yeah yeah you know talking on the mic you know. Uh-huh. Uh, so but but Buster Browns was is. It's been cited as the kind of I mean, I know it's not gonna it's not the same stature wise, but it's been cited as the like the Studio 54 of Scotland mm-hmm. past. It was that popular as a nightclub. Um so I ended anyway, I ended up playing there. And through playing there, I then got introduced to another DJ, um uh, a guy called Kevin Jones, who was the resident DJ at a place called Lord Tom's. Which is on, was on Lothian Road in Edinburgh, um, and now this was a bar, but we had a dance, but had a dance floor. I mean, and when I say a dance floor, I'm talking a postage size stamp, um, a postage stamp size dance floor area. You could maybe fit about twenty people on it, but the bar area was quite big. There was two kind of sections: a back area with a dance floor, but we had a it had, it had a DJ booth. Buster Browns had a big DJ booth that overlooked the dance floor. Bust, uh, Lord Tom's had a like a little cubicle one that you had to you had to go under and get into it. it had glass all the way around it but it was tiny Kevin Jones a resident DJ was well tuned in musically we were, he was getting loads of music sent to him around this time I got introduced to mailing lists and stuff like that I started to get myself blagging myself onto every mailing list that I could get on telling I was DJing five nights a week to 700 capacity clubs and you know I eventually was getting so many records sent, sent in the post my poster used to be annoyed with me carrying tons of records <laughs> so at this point so 91 so then there was obviously the switch with this kind of like there was a, my mates saying we're going to this night called Technodrome and I was like ah, Technodrome? what? they're like ah, it's a rave I was like eh? like I'm doesn't it sound I'm not be going to that like uh, rave music techno it's techno music and I was like nah that's not for me I'm going to stick to what I'm doing in the clubs and blah 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 all my mates went to Technodrome so Technodrome was in Ayrshire in 1991 but see Peter before that what what are the kind of tracks that you're you're playing Is it, are you not seeing dance music sort of infiltrating the club you know are you, are you seeing the switch? Obviously, you're seeing it in the charts, and are you still strictly hip hop? Or no? I, I, what 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 I found was that there was a bit of a obviously with the technology changing and 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 music becoming a bit more 
accessible to people from a production perspective in terms of buying keyboards, drum machines and stuff like that. You were obviously hearing more kind of music. It wasn't a guitar and drums. It was drum machines, even mm. in the charts. Right. You know, people the Razor, the Pet Shop Boys. So you were already getting schooled up electro- to electronic yeah, yeah. music. Then the dance music was... No, because hip-hop, whilst the electro music in the 80s was electronic sounding, you know, craft work, as you said, UK version, art and noise, you know, people like that. Um, For me, it was more of like... um, You you started to hear a a sort of hybrid kind of thing going on where, like, sometimes some people would use a breakbeat and some people use a 4-4 beat with a breakbeat. Um, and so you were hearing little bits and pieces, but I was I was still having to try and play because I was playing in a commercial venue. Lord Tom's and Buster Brown's were ultimately, I mean, Grant Duff, the resident of Buster Brown's under 18s, and Kevin Jones at Lord Tom's are kind of men- mentors for me, not just in terms of musical uh, ex- uh, knowledge, but mixing and understanding how to make a dance floor work and read a crowd and change it just like that if if need be. I learned so much from them, watching them. And I think a lot of that's been lost over the years where people just come on and play whatever they want. Mm -hmm. I still approach it that I've got to come on and make sure that whoever's paid to come in, they they have a good time. It's not about me trying to look cool whilst I'll play the music that I like. I know that I still have to adapt it in a certain way to try and get people to like it. So... um, Mu- certain styles of music that were coming around back then were uh, like a, a more of a I started to feel I could get away with playing more hip house kind of stuff like mm-hmm. Fast Eddie uh, Doug Lazy Let It Rolls a classic track from that era um, even even things like Snap I've, you know I've got the power I mean quite a, a, a you know a huge track breakbeat you know quite a heavy breakbeat influenced infused track that yep um, but in terms of like hearing kind of like a dance rave kind of thing, I was hearing bits and bobs. But again, I didn't know what I, they were saying. We we're going to this technodrome thing, and I'm like, I have no idea what that is, or what. It, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm going to still be in this club environment and try and fit what I want. I mean, it started to become less and less of a a, a sort of thought that oh, there's no hip hop scene in Scotland. There's not whilst I went to the concerts. Uh, saw Public Enemy uh, a couple of times during the early 90s at the Barrowlands as well. There wasn't really a scene, so I think, well, I'm going to have to adapt to play in this environment. Um, but obviously, Technodrome seemed to be quite a game changer for uh, for Scotland in particular. And my mates came back to my house after that in a right state, I must say. Like, absolutely. I think they'd all had their first ease and mm. they all came back to mine. And they were like, to tell me, they were covered in mud. They were absolutely caked in mud. Because Technodrome, that night at Technodrome, and, uh, it was meant to be, I think it was quite heavy rain. Uh, I think it was like, Edinburgh guys that did that. Was it no? Technodrome. Uh, I speak Glasgow. Was it? I, I, I know, I've been speaking to them because they're talking about maybe trying to make a documentary about it. It was the other one then. It was uh, Kenny Mason and stuff like that. Earthquaker. Earthquaker, that's right. So, um, so they've come back to mine. Eyes like fucking saucers, covered in mud. Spreading the gospel a rave. And like, mate, this is you wait till you this is something new kind of thing. You know, again, I, I had no I hadn't experienced it. So I'm like, must be all right, man. They're saying it's all right. Do you know what I mean? It's like so um I then decide 
in when I lived in Pennycook at the time, there was a place called the Complex, which was a it was a um, a pub, but it had a function room in it. And a guy that I know from Pennycook, a guy called John Edward Edwards, was doing a night. He was doing his own kind of thing. Uh, he's, I think it was just I can't even remember what he was calling it. It was a rave. But I'd already been DJing in the clubs, but he asked me, do you want to come and play at it? I was like, fair enough. Went down, he had, he was using bedroom hi-fi speakers and for lights, he had nicked two road lights, mate. Mm-hmm. Two flashing yellow road lights on the table. This is what his setup was. And I was thinking, this is pure amateur, man. You know, yeah, I'm, yeah. Aging, I'm in the techniques in a nightclub, I. I'm in the nightclubs and I'm on Technics and I'm in and I think he did have Technics, but in the lights and strobes and smoke machine and all that, I'm thinking. I just thought to myself, I'm going to do my end night here. So that was 1991. I just after Technodrome, I contacted this this the management and said, right, I want to hire the function room. I'm going to put a night on in here. So I was thinking, right, can you come up with a name? So one of the albums that I, that I was listening to at the time, uh, this is, you know, the early 90s, as you as you know, mega mixes and stuff like that became really popular. And compilation, mega mix compilation albums were becoming more of a thing. And there was a series called Mega Bass that came out. Um, and I thought, that's quite a good name for a night. I'm going to call my night Mega Bass. So we ripped, the art, we, we ripped off the artwork on the front cover for the album Got my mate to kind of hand draw it, went, made posters up. I think the posters were hand drawn as well and got them copied at the, the local printing shop in Bennycook. Two pound a ticket, I had to go and hire a sound system. I had never, obviously, no experience of this at all. I went into Sweet Inspiration in the town and hired uh, a moonflower, a smoke machine, smoke fluid, and a strobe. And I remember thinking, oh, how am I going to buy, f-? you know, I'm like the money? I think I borrowed the money to pay f- to, to pay for it. I can't remember if you put a down payment on it or you paid for it on the water. But anyway, I got the stuff and hired the sound system. And uh, so I put that night on £2. I mean, when you think about it, £2, I should have charged way more than that. But <laughs> it, it, I totally sold, it was totally sold out. Yep. Totally rammed the whole place out. So I did a few events of them. So this at this point I was I was on as I said I was on record mailing list. So I was actually getting more tunes, and I was seeing more and more of a kind of break. I was like, and here's the techno stuff. I didn't really like that, but I'm hearing other stuff that's a bit more, you know, in tune with me in terms of using the break beats. It's kind of tech techno sounds, but there's break beats in here. Yeah. So this is what I'll play. Um. So that's what I basically kind of started to play. And um, whilst that was, you know, in those days, you know, it wasn't over overly pop- or popular from that perspective. But you know, I, I, I do believe. I mean, I was educating people. People would say, oh, you know, I can't believe you were playing all that stuff back then. Nobody else was playing anything. It was breakbeat and you know, orientated music and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I wouldn't always play a, 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 at my nights. Um, Solely breakbeat orientated tracks because of my experience in the nightclub at Busters and Lord Tom's, I played to the crowd as well. So I would put in things like you know, 
uh, you know, Brothers in Rhythm, such a good feeling, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. Quite commercial, very uplifting, kind of piano-oriented stuff. Still, still a wicked track at the same at the same time. I wouldn't tend to play things that I didn't really like. I just knew that I had to play to the crowd to some degree because it's yeah. not about you know. It is about you know, as DJs, I think it's partly about you, but all but, but predominantly about the crowd. You're there to make people dance at the end Aye. of the day. You're not there to show that. I'm playing all the you know the coolest music and people are like no idea what you're playing. Do you know what I mean? Um, so from Megabase, I did three Megabase events in Pennycook, and on the last one there was loads of trouble outside between Pennycook and Lone Head, which are two rival towns at the time. Uh, the management told me you can't put your event on in here anymore because of the trouble. There was guys got all absolutely leathered outside mm-hmm. ambulance. Oh. So. They obviously, they obviously won the on ecstasy. <laughs> no, 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 I think this was, no, this was still, this was still aye. like the, the, the sort of late teens crowd. The gang culture. Early 20s, I know, P- Pennycook soccer, it was the PST, Pennycook soccer trendies they were called and against some lone, I can't remember what lone head were called at the time. Anyway, luckily for me, the guy who I borrowed, that I, that I hired the sound system off, contacted me and said, I've had a guy on the phone from Glen Rothis <coughs> who wants to hire a sound system, but he's also asking about DJs if he knew any rave DJs. So I've suggested you, if you, you know, want to go and have a meeting with him or whatever. So me and my mates drove through to Glen Rothis to a place called uh, uh, Crystal's Arena, which was an ice rink at the time in Glen Rothis. It's no longer there. I met this guy called Michael, and he was like, right. So he take, took us into the into the uh, ice rink, and it was upstairs. They had a function room. The ice rink, ice rink was downstairs, which had already had raves on it. I can't remember. I don't know if Street Rave had some of their early raves at Glenrothes. Uh, I think I think they did. There was an ice rink that they did something. Aye. They did Kirkcaldy. I know that they did Kirkcaldy ice rink, but I, th- I don't know if they did Glenrothes as well. Anyway, so this function room was like quite a big... I was thinking, oh, this is quite good. Had a little stage. Said, right, well, well, let's do Megabase here. We'll do it here. So set up with this guy, this 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 young lad. Uh, I can't even remember how long it took us to set that up. Got it, got it going. I ran two 50-seater coaches from Pennycook to it. It was completely sold out. It was rammed on the first night. Uh, the I, on the night was so the night had a great success, huge success. You know, everybody loved it. Um, and there certainly there was a lot of ease at that night. Um, I then was trying to get paid, get everybody paid, but I was introduced to this laddie who had got the, got me through for the meeting. His uncle, who was running the security, and he was like, he tried to pay me off with a hundred quid. I brought set it all up, brought all the DJs. Sorted the sound system out, and they were paying. I was like, "Hold on a minute here. No, I've put the DJs. So I've supplied all the night. I mean, this is me really. This is me, eighteen years old, into promoting mm-hmm. and deal with somebody who's older than me, who's trying to palm me off with a hundred quid. I'm like, I'm, right. not having, I'm not having this. I was like, mate, no, this is not how it's going to work. If we're going to be doing things, you know, I'm going to have to pay all the DJs, and and I'm getting paid as well. That's my night." Frankie's name was. He was sound. So anyway, so from that point, got on, got on really well with him. So I decided to change. I just think Megabase 
kind of sounded a bit old hat at that point, thinking it kind of sounds a bit 80, late 80s. You know, it was all about pump up the jam, mm-hmm. inner city, good life kind of time, mega yep. bass, beat this, bomb the bass and all that. I was like, I need a new name. So I was looking through my record collection and at this time I'd started to uh, get music sent to me from XL Records. And one of the first tunes that I got sent was the Android EP by The Prodigy. And on the B side of that is a tune called Pandemonium. And I decided I'm going to use that for a name for my night. And that's what I decided to call it. So going forward from one night Megabase at Crystal's Arena, we changed it to Megabase and we ran it there for, I think it was just short of two years running it there, running it at Glen Northers. I mean, and it was really... As Megabase? No, as Pandemonium. Pandemonium, right. And so, what, so I did one Megabase and then changed it to Pandemonium. Oh, okay, right. Um, and then, um, and, and that was hugely, hugely popular. I mean, and so this is a real... Uh, sort of cutting my promoting teeth period of time because I started to deal with agents in London for booking DJs so we booked DJ Reckless who was a DMC champion at the time um, we had on Eskimos in Egypt Manix we had Saffron perform so Saffron was obviously the singer the Enjoy singer she left Enjoy to become Saffron before she then went in to be the lead singer of is it Republica Republica oh, that's right yeah uh, Dream Frequency played there and that was through Martin DJ Deviate who c- came to Pandemonium I think he came as a raver one night and introduced himself and played I think he played and then he ba- he basically became a, a resident and Martin I don't know how he knew Ian Bland but anyway we had Dream Frequency and that was, I mean, that was a, that was one of the best nights that we had when we had Dream Frequency. That was 19, I think, that was 1992, our Dream Frequency. So that was Dream Frequency, you know, really kicking off at that point with, you know. At their peak and all that with a show, the UV lights and. Yeah, so that was with Mikey B. Mikey B was was the MC mm-hmm. for back then. And he had uh, his dancers, Joe and Josephine, two dancers. And I think there was a guy called Errol as well. There was another dancer, uh, black guy. A phenomenal show. I mean, I mean, you'll know Ian. I mean, he does. You know, he's 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 a um, um, you know well-known producer and 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 made so many classic tracks over the years. But uh, yeah, Pandemonium was hugely successful, and that's where MC Gavzi became a resident as well. Um, and obviously, we're going to be performing together. Pandemonium set at nineteen ninety four and. You know, a couple uh, a week on Saturday, a week on Saturday. Fuck's sake, it's no long way. And are you looking forward to doing that? Like, you, I know you. I spoke to you about it, and you've got the gallery. Is it just kind of ideas of what you used to do? And well, I think for me in particular, I mean, I don't do. I, you know, I say I, I have been asked to do old school events over the years, and I've I've tend to knock them back really. Uh, and that's through that's for a variety of reasons. One of the things I I, I look at people's nights, and I think. You know, why are they doing it? I mean, ultimately, as a promoter, I always say to people that it's a business. You need to, you've got bills to pay, you know, you need to make money if it's your livelihood. And 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 rightly so, you should be able to make money money from it. But when I tend to veer away from things, if I think they're just solely people who are in it for the money and they're not mm-hmm. musically orientated in their background, people like yourself, who I know 
deep-rooted history in the music industry in Scotland. And um, But, yeah, it's, you know, to be able to do something, in particular in my hometown in Edinburgh, I mean, it's, you know, I've not done... I've not done an old school thing in Edinburgh for a long, long time. Obviously, you know, drum and bass and jungle has been my 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 main musical style that I've been known for in Scotland over the years. Mm-hmm. But no, definitely really looking forward to it. And Gabsy came up the studio last week and we we're just going through the tunes. One thing I, that I wanted to kind of speak to Gabsy about, because Gabsy MCs at quite a lot of the old school events in Scotland, and I just wanted to kind of go over some tunes. I don't want to come and perform and, and, and kind of play things that maybe really other everybody else might play or them or, or things that maybe people might have heard repeatedly at these events. And because it's a pandemonium set, whilst pandemonium was commercial in the sense it still was kind of rave oriented, we were a bit bit more underground musically. Mm-hmm. Um and that would be not just through me playing kind of breakbeat stuff, you know, which people used to complain about that to me. People used to say, I remember one time a guy said to me, oh, why do you keep playing that speeded up hip hop shit? That's what he referred to breakbeat as. Yeah. Um, and funnily, uh, uh, it's funny that how people think about breakbeat and stuff like that. Because back then, you know, it's almost like people, oh, this, I can't dance to it. It's a bit like, oh, there's too much going on. But I, and I say, but it's the same 4-4 beat. It's just because there's more going on. Mm-hmm. I didn't know which part to dance to. Is it the same? Right, right. You know, like this. Um, and it's funny, my partner, um, uh, a girl that, I, that, I, that I'd known for years and came onto the scene in 2012 and, and we were talking on the phone <laughs> And she said to me, are you still playing that music that sounds like somebody's falling down a flight of stairs? <laughs> I think, you know, I, 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 I just think that's a really good analogy. Aye, uh, yeah, it's like a fucking drummer, one one man band falling down the stairs. You know what I mean? So, but I always try to say, people. I used to say to people, in particular, when they come to Manga, you know, the night that I was obviously big drum and bass night that I was involved in for 12 years, ultimately broke drum and bass and jungle music in Scotland. I would always say to people, listen, don't knock it till you've tried it. Come mm-hmm. to the club. And I know you went to Manga yourself, you know, right. I know you went Metalheads and stuff like that. I know you've got a, a great affinity with, with uh, breakbeats and you've obviously got a, a, a hip-hop and rap music background yourself. So you appreciate and understand those elements. Um, but I would always say to people, come to the night and see what it's like. Yeah. And I'm, every single time I would take people, they would come away going, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Because... In particular with drum and bass, now, drum and bass is so powerful, but you really need to hear it through a sound system to yep. really appreciate it. You know, you can have it on a cassette tape or a CD or whatever, and you might hear it and stuff like that, but until you come to the club and watch a crowd react to the bass lines and yeah, the you riff, see the energy, yep. Yeah, you know, people, you know, if you, you feed off, you ultimately feed off it and you think, wow, you know, and people have said, whilst it's not really my thing. I get it. I understand mm-hmm. it now. I understand why people like it, especially when there's rewinds and the crowd's going crazy, you know. So, um, but no, with the 1994, um, we're definitely going to be touching on probably, a, a, you know, there's going to be in a lot of tunes that people are thinking, I have not heard that one for a uh, long time. You know, it's still doing like, a bit of digging and pulling out the gems kind of thing. 
Definitely. I mean, without without going too deep, because when because I've got all the pandemonium pandemonium recordings, I can listen back and I think that's a bit that's going to be a bit too much, a bit too you know breakbeat you know oriented. I mean, back then I would definitely be just be a bit more kind of ruthless and said, I'm playing this whether they like it or not. Mm-hmm. Just, this is what I'm into, <laughs> getting it, so they can either like it or not. But whereas now I'm a bit more you know right, I've got to make people dance at the end of the day. Yeah. And I, and, None of us as DJs like to clear the floor at any point, do you know what I mean? I think what what is equally good about these old school nights is people are a wee bit more well-versed in all things old school and they appreciate yeah. it more. You know, it's like, you know, like that that time, was it Livingston Foam when you just had enough and fucking tell the crowd to fuck off kind of thing? Yeah. Which I thought was fucking amazing. You know, yeah. Yeah, it's a funny one. It's a funny one that because it's, it's probably uh, better sweet for you kind of thing. You know what I mean? But it's actually, do you know what? It's funny, funny because somebody came up to me at Manga one night and they said, "Oh, I really love what you. I really loved that you told the crowd to fuck off at, at, at that event in Livingston." And I was like, "How do you know about that?" He says, "Oh, I read about it in the book in the in this book that's come out." I was like, "It's in a book." He's like, "Ah, do you know know about it?" I was like, "No." Nah. So there's a book came out in the 90s called uh, All Crews uh, Must Big Up by Brian Belfortune. And it's basically a book about the history of the sort of, predominantly the the, UK, the English side of the rave scene, but more about the hardcore breakbeat jungle roots and stuff like that. And in, I, I got in contact with him and I was like, I heard you've written about me. He said, yeah, I've, I, it's like I heard about this, that you had it really hard, difficult in Scotland, and you played at this event and, and, and decided to stop the music and took the mic off the MC and told the crowd to fuck off. <laughs> I, said, I said, I did. I said, at the time, it wasn't like, I thought, well, that wasn't a smart move. I had Tom Wilson on the phone the following day going, what on earth happened last night at the forum? Because like, Livingston Foam, what are we talking about? A good couple of thousand people, weren't it? They were big raves, man. 3,000 capacity. 3,000 was it, aye. Aye. Um, so that night, Hysteria in 1993, <clears throat> uh, I was actually booked to play what I was playing at that time by the promoter, uh, Kenny Can. Um, but, yeah, I remember playing and just being like, I could almost hear the crowd like a disgruntled, sound coming out of the crowd and being like oh like moan, like kind of this moaning kind of and then it, and then light sticks empty cans of beer were sort of just appeared fired across the stage and everything and the DJ booth was right at the back of the stage and I've been thinking what's going on here and the people were looking at me and you know you ultrasonic were were coming on after me was that right? Was right? Was right? Okay, I, I forgot about that. You were preparing to come on. You were right. at the left side of the stage. The fuck. DJ, right, right hand side, and I just, fuck, I was just, ah, fuck this, boom, stopped the record, just stopped the record, took the record off, put the needle on the, the arm off, put my record on, record in the box, shut my box. You are all standing, looking at me across the stage, like, you know, everybody's like, what the fuck? What's Where happening? What's going on here? What's happening here? So I've got my record box, just walked over the stage. Then <laughs> to the MC, I was like, come here. He's that. Give me the mic. I was like, fuck off. Like that to the crowd. 
I mean, it wasn't the smartest decision by any any means, but um, I thought, as I said, Tom Wilson phoned me. Uh, funny, funnily enough, sitting in the car park after that night, me and my mate, uh, KMC, the, another breakbeat DJ of, of the time, uh, both of us were kind of known as the breakbeat DJs in Scotland at the time. Um, subsequently, we're in a FUBAR mailing list of DJs not to, not to book. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, uh, we were sitting in his car in the car park at the Livingston Forum after that and I remember because we'd met two girls and we were waiting them coming outside anyway we were just sitting there and these two ravers came out and they were coming past the car and we were talking about the night and the boys ah cracky night blah 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 and one of the boys goes he goes that DJ kid was shit <laughs> as he passed the car and I thought oh no man I've totally ruined my career here fucking do you know what I mean anyway when Tom phoned me he was like, oh, I just felt bad. I thought, I mean, I wasn't really getting an awful lot of work in Scotland at the time anyway. And I thought, oh, I really fucked it up here. I decided, so Club Scene Magazine put out a, a, a letter in the letters page or a statement about it. They had a real go at me. And then I decided to uh, put in a personal apology in Club Scene Magazine uh, for that. Can't remember that, man. Um, but I still got. I've got. I've still got copies right, of it. Right. Um, and, uh, and then, over the years, people have come up to me all over the place. Even in England, they've said, "Oh, I love that you told the crowd to fuck off at that event because you were playing breakbeat and they didn't. They were all fucking moaning and stuff like that." Uh, you know, it's kind of a bit. You know, uh, a bit of sort of notoriety in that sense. Uh-huh. You know, but at the time, I was like. Oh no, this was a big mistake, man. I, it, it wasn't a planned thing, but what I liked about it is rave scene <clears throat> for me was all about the togetherness, about all music, you know, not just one sort of style. And and this was kind of like you playing whatever you were into. And folk just weren't embracing it. And it should have been about embracing the night. And for me, it was just like a, a good sort of punk rock attitude of fuck off, man. You know what? You're, you're just uh, no getting it. And no, I no, think no. probably a lot of people in the crowd probably never got it until a good few years later. And then they probably went, all oh, right. Because I think one of my pet hates with the scene was it would get really pigeonholed. And for this, having a bit of everything, it just went to separate rooms and then folk just was into hardcore or that was it. Or Gabba or House or Techno. It just wasn't yeah. It wasn't everybody together anymore. Oh, no, no, definitely. Uh, we get very, very much segregated, and because and, and, I mean, when you look at events like Resurrection and stuff like that, in particular in the in, the, in those early ninety events, they would have on Jumping Jack Frost, Fabio and Groove, right, brilliant, right Nicky, across the board, man. Nicky Finn, do you know what I mean? So they were getting, they were, they were, they were. And now, don't don't get me wrong. They those DJs again, very, very much well versed in in the 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 crowd pleasing perspective. They wouldn't come here and necessarily really play something like a full set that we play in London. I mean, I played over in Belfast with Jumping Jack Frost and you would never have thought it was Jumping Jack Frost playing because he was playing in Belfast and Belfast, you couldn't go and play what they would record. They 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 refer to it as broken beats. That's what they called it over there. If you paid break beats, they go, you're not going to be playing any of that pissy broken beat stuff here. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's very much techno 4-4 or whatever. So you adapted to, to a crowd, but, um, you know, I definitely feel that Scotland could have been... Um, and I blame the promoters for this I blame certain promoters in particular Resurrection I had a bit of a beef with them they never ever booked me 
until I played live on Radio 1. When I played live on Radio 1, one in the jungle, they were on the phone the following week. Yeah. Hooked me. And I said, where have you been for all the other years that I played? And because they pissed me off that much, I double booked myself and didn't bother playing for them. I played for World Dance doing it like their <laughs> I was like, no, I'm no fucking, I'm not just going to come now. Jump to their tune. Just because I've played live on Radio 1, you know what I mean? Which was a huge thing, though. To play on One in the Jungle on Radio 1, which was the flagship jungle show on, on, on national radio, yeah. that, was ma- that was massive. Um, but I was like, nah, I'm playing at World Dance at Lyd Airport in Kent, mate, in front of, you know, 10,000 people. I'm all playing at Resurrection. And they weren't, pissed, they weren't even that pissed off that they booked me again. <laughs> I just I said, I I'm playing doing South. Um, and I played, I actually played for them just before they finished up. Um, but I would really have liked to have, to have played more, you know, at Resurrection. But the avenue, the way that they went musically, uh, you know, um, I don't know who was, like you said, you know, there was a period of time where you could get, you could get like a lineup of mixed styles, um, you know, on a night and Resurrection just became like, you know, like, the, especially when, the, you know, it's like the Gabba technique. Uh, musically, it just went doing a, doing a harder, faster thing instead of having like diverse lineups like fucking Laurent Garnier, Delaney D in one night and then uh, just kind of just stuck on that hard thing and it basically fitted away and and I think that summed up Scotland's rave scene in general and probably I don't know mate I think you know you've probably made a lot of harsh decisions but I think well, I'd like to think looking back they were probably the right decisions because well, for me for you I because I mean, look, I mean I had, I had no cross pathway in a while and I think we met each other in 23rd precinct and you told me about Manga and I was like, oh, fuck, is that your night? And then I come through to a few of them and you were fucking wrecking it with them, man. Because for my fix for a bit of fucking that kind of action, I was going down to the blue note. Cause I didn't I actually wasn't aware there was fuck all happening. Yeah. Um up up this neck of the woods. So it was great to fucking hear it and see it happening and you know, and also like, I don't know, see a Scottish guy fucking leading the charge kind of thing and something that was yeah. I don't know, almost fucking, not frowned upon, but they just didn't seem to be a scene here and you were fucking well, creating I mean, it out of necessity kind of thing. Even getting club nights, it used to be really difficult. Even even in the, in the so prior to Manga, um, I was involved in, in other nights in Edinburgh. One, in, one, one night in particular called Street Knowledge, which I used to run with KMC. Um, we did that at the venue and we brought Ronnie Size to Scotland in 1995 and Ronnie Size was nobody. Mm-hmm. He knew about him because, we, I mean, we were fully into the jungle scene at that time and KMC was more of uh, 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 into the what what used to be regarded as the intelligent drum and bass side of things, which was LTJ Bookham and, yep. all, you, know, um, you know, more of a melodic drum and bass, sort of jungle drum and bass um, style, whereas I was into the hardcore breakbeat sounds, all the r- raga samples and all the hip hop stuff. But we couldn't get venues to give us dates. We would contact mm. clubs and be like, ah, you're not putting that on in here. And we could only get clubs uh, Sunday nights and then maybe a, a Thursday. 
I did uh, another night called Jungle Park at 9C, which is now the Liquid Room, the music box it used to be called. And I had DJ Ron playing at that, uh, Daisy and Jake's from Bristol. Um, did a couple of nights. But again, you know, uh, not having the ability to put on a Friday and Saturday, which was predominantly taken up by more of the commercial house club, house and techno and stuff like that. And, and Scotland is, you know, it, it's funny, Glasgow for me, like when we did running manga in Edinburgh, we decided to branch out and start doing Glasgow. Now, Glasgow... Uh, I've always viewed Glasgow from a musical perspective kind of ahead of Edinburgh in so many ways through through its talent obviously people like the Slam guys um, you know in particular I mean they have put that big event on at Ingleston Slam 3D I remember going mm-hmm. to that Um but just they just they just seem to take things a bit more seriously in Glasgow. Um, but Glasgow, like Edinburgh, to some degree, didn't take to the breakbeat elements of music. Now I have to say, Mark Smith and Notorious Vinyl, he definitely had the ability to, I think, school people into the sound a little bit with what he was doing. I really liked what Mark was doing. I mean, he's a hugely talented DJ as well. Um, He's good good scratching and stuff like that. Um, And so there might have been a time where it potentially could have been possible, but Mark wasn't really in, if that fully into that scene. So there wasn't really anybody other than KMC, who was from Hamilton. There was, I don't think there was really anybody Champion you know, in that sound. Oh no, no, not on the West Coast. So anyway, so when manga got going in 1996, and by the the late 90s, early 2000s, we decided to branch out to Glasgow uh, and do the Sub Club, uh, which is a great venue. And, Legendary uh, venue, man. We end up doing nice loads of nights in Glasgow. We really had it going in Glasgow at one point. We were doing the Sub Club, the Art School. Um, the Renfrew Ferry, we used to have so many good nights on the Renfrew mm-hmm. Ferry. That was an amazing venue, wasn't it? Ah, it was like, to, you know, like so unique to have that on the wee boat on, on the Clyde like that. Um, uh, but there there did become a bit of a scene. There was a night at the art school called Live Evil. There was a guy called Paul Reset who then became known as the kind of person for what was now called drum and bass. The jungle term had kind of died away and it was now drum and bass music. Um, and they were doing a night at the art school, him and a DJ, female DJ called Tanya Swift, a South African girl. Um, um, so they were doing that. We were doing manga, but then I got, uh, and then I got a bi-weekly show on Beat 106. When Beat 106 started, we got a drum and bass show every Sunday, uh, 11 to 1 on a Sunday night. Now, that was quite big. I thought that was really good for Scotland. You know, I thought, right, mm-hmm. this is it. this is an opportunity for more people to hear it because I think, as I said earlier on about people not having the opportunity to hear it properly and come to the club and, and listen to it, um, it's, uh, it, it's very difficult for them to, 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 to understand the music in, in so many different ways. But there was a time in 2000 where things were really good. Edinburgh had lots... I mean, Edinburgh has ultimately always been the hub for drum and bass and jungle. There's no doubt about it. And that's through... through predominantly through manga, 
following manga, we've got uh, obviously my other night, Jungle Magic. Um, there was another night called Explicit, uh, and you, you, you know you've got you've had various nights over the years that have kind of carried the flag for drum and bass music forward. But Edinburgh has the added advantage of having English students. Right, okay. Does, but Edinburgh University, Queen Margaret University, are huge. Uh, they've got a huge influx of English students that come here. Without the English students being in Edinburgh, I don't think it would have been as easy for, to, to put Edinburgh on the map and put Scotland on the map for a jung jungle and drum and bass perspective. Yeah. Do you know what? I've um, never actually thought about that angle. Knew that you say that, it makes so much sense. You know, it's fucking joined the dots for me. Because for yep. me, in the early 90s as well, I always felt, bizarrely, I felt musically Edinburgh was ahead of Glasgow. Isn't that mad how I thought that and you kind of thought Glasgow had the edge? I would, I, would, I would say more so. Glasgow's probably would always have the edge in terms of production. Uh -huh. There seems to have always been more people through the West Coast you've got yourself I mean I mean I'm not, and when I say the West I mean they're not predominantly just Glasgow look you've got yourself Scott Brown Cumbernauld you know all these rave all these rave bands over the years that have been around they're predominantly all from the West Coast mm -hmm. all of them nearly they're not really from I'm talking about in the 90s rave bands yeah, Who's, yeah. what bands were from Edinburgh in, not really any of them uh, I've got to, I've mean, got, I've got to say Finney Tribe Mr Egg Eggy you know, from from the from the the doing acid sort of style stuff. Do you know what I mean? But like, whatever it is, Glasgow. What's that old saying that they used to have? Glasgow's is it smiles better? They used mm -hmm. to have that big uh, yellow Mister Man thing yeah. as their advertising thing. But I've just always felt Glasgow's had the kind of edge with the production side of things and a bit more. Um, Edinburgh's really, really difficult. Uh, they say out of all the all the cities to promote in in Scotland to make things work, Edinburgh's the, the hardest place to make things work. Um, it's very cutthroat here. That, and this, this, I was going to say to you earlier on that what I've found over the years, for some reason, now, didn't get me wrong, I've made mistakes over the years in terms of my attitude towards people, how I speak to people, how I deal with people, um, things I've done. But for some reason, down south, I've never had, ha I've never really had any problems with people down south. I've always had a great affinity and a great love. We've got a great mutual respect for the music. And up here, it's always almost like, oh, he's making it. How is he making it? Uh, you know, how, how is he successful? You know, people didn't appreciate and understand how much work goes into getting to where we are at at 50 year old and to be still actively involved in the music industry now i took a a a, a, a period of time out of the music industry but i knew i was going to get back into it but to still be actively involved and be doing stuff and be looking to be creative even more so nowadays due to the the pressures that are on you in terms of social media uh you know how you promote your events you know there's there's, there's so much it's not just as like putting a flyer out these days like the olden days mm -hmm. People came here night, whether you put flyers, I mean, like manga in particular. People would, manga got such a good reputation that I could have put my granny on, mate, and people would have come and saw her play. Mm -hmm. It was that. because no, they were coming for the event. 
Aye, no, people will say like, oh, Denny Ke- who are these people that are playing with Denny Ken? We're gone because Manga's a brilliant a, night. such a great night. It's rammed, we'd sell out in advance all the time for, for long periods, for years, you know. So, but I just don't get what it is about Scotland in particular. I don't want to say it's just Edinburgh because I don't, I can't speak for Glasgow in terms of its the musical community. But I would, I mean, and the people that I do know from Glasgow, Always seem to be more more supportive of each other. Edinburgh just, just has this negative, like, why are they doing that? How are they doing this? How is he successful at that? I'm better than them, you know. And even more so now, I've got more followers than them, so I should. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, like I deserve to be getting somewhere, even though I'm not doing the graft to get yeah. anywhere. I think um, I think that's just a Scottish mentality. I think it's I think it's that fucking tribal clan mentality where somebody does all right, and then I don't know if it's jealousy. It's got to be a bit of jealousy in there that you just want to tear it down and rally and support it. And and I think that's one. And I and I think that's Scotland wide. Wide. I mean, there is support and there is people who are working together and stuff like that. But there's just always been that fucking people hate to see other people do well whereas yeah. I get what you're saying and, and I don't know rose tinted glasses I would go I England seem to have a fucking scene and they're all working together but then when I speak to English artists you hear the same pattern man everybody wants to one up somebody else yeah I so think is it just fucking humans in general which is why I fucking outdo the next guy Maybe, maybe, and it's something that over the years that it took me, like, getting the, the the more I got involved in music and the more I came up against this kind of stuff, I, I didn't really know how to navigate it, really. It fucking wears you down, man, doesn't it? It's like, you know, what, who says, you know, obviously pre-internet days, I mean, when you got somebody saying anything, but what would you hear? Oh, so-and-so says you're a dickhead. Like, all right. Now, you know, now in days you're like, I, I really struggled in the early days of the internet with the forums and stuff like that. Mm. I used to see getting slagged off for the forums like, were fucking hardcore but back in the day, weren't they? When you actually think about some of the shit that was because that was genuine faceless, it was just some cunt put a fucking name up and then they were like the keyboard warriors and stuff. Aye, aye, mate, I've been going out to murder people, mate. Aye, aye. <laughs> like I'm going, who the fuck is this? Aye this about me what what are they talking about like you know and I was like very much back then like really like you know I'm a junglist didn't fuck with me mm-hmm. I'm gonna come fucking see you and I would go and see people like especially like you said the keyboard gangster warrior you know you know ultimately sitting in their underpants in their attics their and, and if you did find out speak to them nine times out of ten they would shit themselves I've been there, mate, and people say, no, 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 it's only a laugh. We're only mm-hmm. having a laugh. Because they look like it's a laugh to me, mate. But yeah. one of the things, the mistakes that I made, and it's something that I learned over the years to to not do, is to, to not engage with it in the sense yeah. that if somebody's got anything to say, it's funnily talking about public enemy, there's a documentary called uh, Prophets of Rage. It's a public enemy documentary. It's a really good. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's really, really good. So there's a point in it where Flavor Flav and Professor Professor Griff are talking about an, a feud that they were having whilst on tour. Now, Flavor Flav has be, was notorious for being unreliable, always can he find them for the sound checks, away, yeah. loads of women... He would turn up on tour with all his clothes and shopping bags, you know, just a bit rough and ready, yeah. ready edges, flavor flavor. And 
the story was that Professor Griff said, uh, he, brought, he, he brandished a pistol at me one time and Flavor said, I never brought a pistol out on him. He said, and they're, they're interviewing both of them and he said, that's what he did. For, 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 for Professor Griff's like, no, he had a pistol and he took it out and pointed it at me. And Flavor Flav's talking about the beef and all this that goes on. He says, he says, I hear people talking about stuff all the time. He said, you know what I'll let happen? He said, bullshit comes my way and I just let it bounce off my chest and fuck off somewhere else. Because if I engage with it, you're just, you know, that feeding, you know, fuel to the fire. Kind aye, of, aye. What's the point? And, and you know, and, and ultimately when I look at people doing it, I've not long recently had a bit of drama which was really uncalled for and a bit of online kind of uh, slandering kind of stuff. And I, whilst I found it difficult because I hadn't really experienced anything like this for quite some time and it was unwarranted, um, I was like, oh, I've learned though because I'm not doing anything about this. I've stepped back. Now, I could get involved in this and I could be putting up a statement or say mm. this, go and see somebody. And, you know, I'm just like, no. But but my younger self, like, I'm on the warpath, mate. I'm like, Hi. I'm going to find out who you are under your screen name and I'm going to come looking for you. <laughs> aye, aye. And then I, I remember speaking to one guy at a club. He's like, oh, he was. I was DJing in Edinburgh one time and he's a uh, stat. He's, He's, he's leaning on the DJ booth with his arms like this, looking at me for the whole set like this. Just standing, no dancing or nothing. I was thinking, what's this guy doing? So I saw him outside and I was like, mate, I said, what's your game? What? What are you doing? Are you trying to intimidate me? He's like, no, no, I'm just watching what you're playing in that. I said, mate, you weren't I said, in any case, I saw what you had to say about me on the forum. There used to be a forum called ScottishDrumAndBass.com and it was really, really bad. bad. Mm -hmm. One of the worst, one of the biggest mistakes that I ever did was join that forum back in the day because I just got so wrapped up in beef and creating multiple usernames, hiding your IP address. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it fucks with your head, man. You can what, have fucking what, what, you know what, what a complete and utter waste of time, mate. I could be, you know, I, I say to people, say, listen, any beef, ignore it. Just keep doing what you're doing. You know, you're going to, your haters are going to hate. You're going to have people who like you and people who didn't like, you know, dislike you. And the way I look at it is at the end of the day, I am just a DJ. I love music. I've, you know, I've loved it. I've been involved in music industry for such a long time that I just want to be in a, like you, you were saying, in a room full of people listening to all different styles of music, whether they're on it, whether they're on ease or acid or whatever, having a really good time and and just enjoying each other other other's company. Do you know what I mean? That's what it's about. It's about the music, mate. It's not about who's better than who and who's done this and who's done that. You yeah. know, I've I've had that over the years, and it didn't didn't get me wrong. I think I think we all go through periods of time as musicians, DJs where the ego maybe takes over a little bit and mm -hmm. you do start to think I used to walk into manga mate with two record boxes and they'd be like he's all oh, every the heads were turning there's DJ Kid now I'm I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy that you know I certainly didn't play on it in the sense that I didn't use it to my advantage or anything I didn't be I'm DJ Kid by the way mm -hmm. you should bow down to me and get me bottles of crystal <laughs> do you know what I mean aye but you enjoyed 
Yeah, I guess it's enjoying what you've created. Yeah, no, no. I mean, to be part of these things, you know, and to be, as I said, at 50, I've just turned 50. I know I didn't look it, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I just I, I feel to be in the sort to have this opportunity, and particularly to do things like play in 1994. You know, as I said, I don't do old school things, and I would I'm very per- pernickety about who I play for and what I'm doing and the reasons that I'm doing it pers- pers- for personal reasons. That to play at something like that, you know, I saw your last 1994, I thought, you know, that's you know, look at the crowd, they're all loving it, you know, and I really love that video that you did when you were you were talking about the. The you know the, the people coming out and, and and enjoying themselves again, people who are maybe haven't been out for years, and you know now that their kids have all grown up and moved on, and rather than sitting in the the house and watching, you know, I mean I watch Netflix and stuff like that, Aye, but, but you know, fucking just another sitting in our box state again, but you know get, Aye, get so many good things come out of it, man. No, get yourself out there, and you know, and and, and good, one of the good things I think about what you're doing with 1994. Uh, is the is the the early t- you know the five o'clock start and the one o'clock finish because mm-hmm. whilst I know people would love love to go to these things, I know that when they're later, people are like, oh no, ten o'clock, I'm in my bed by ten o'clock. <laughs> normally, you know what I mean. So so they have the opportunity to come to these things. It's in the daytime. They can come. They can come and come and have a laugh. Hear all the che- all the all the all amazing the the, the multitude. Of, Amazing tunes that we've, that, we've, that we've heard over the the last thirty years and the rave scene and stuff like that, in particular back in the nineties. Um, and you know, it's not every day, it's not every week, it's not every month. It's mm-hmm. a one-off. They're one-off events and they're special events. So for me, as a DJ, when I look at things, I think, and I want to play at that because when I played last year down south on a, um, I don't know if you saw, what I was playing, I think, on River Dance, mm-hmm. um, and that's once a year. That's you know that sells out in three weeks. Once the tickets go on sale, it's not on. It's on in October on the Thames. It's a seven-hour rave on a boat on the Thames. Um, and I remember looking at it and thinking, hmm, "What's you know this looks? What will this be like?" But it was uh, very. It's very popular. Um, I mean, it was amazing. It was right. so. Great. It was so good to be with DJs and 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 ravers and talking to ravers. You know, people coming up to me and we're talking about sets that I did back in the nineties when mm-hmm. I played in England, and you know, and you know, and I, 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 you, you all you come away from these events, you know, with a real buzz and an energy from. Yep. The music and the people and the, you know and everybody's like you know people have been messaging me going oh we are going to be coming to 1994 no seeing you and Gavzi perform for mm-hmm. a long long time I mean me and Gavzi haven't performed um, a, a set like this since 1996 Bro, we- and that's a manga a Gavzi MC that manga uh, on a couple of occasions but we haven't done an actual rave set like this since since pandemonium I think you will be well you I think you'll be pleasantly surprised and I, and I think you'll be surprised at how people will know the tunes because that's what I think's amazing about it you know like it's I saw it's decades ago for us but the people who are into that music have listened to maybe your sets countless times for a download or yeah yeah you know, I mean and they know the tracks now even more than they did back then so they're well versed in what's gone on, and they, and, and that's what I think. It's they always the crowd always constantly surprise you because 
they sometimes know your tunes better than you because they've probably listened to it more than, well, than you played it, and it's yeah. fucking mad. I think one of the things you know quite poignant that you that you said that whilst people maybe couldn't have necessarily got their heads around breakbeat stuff back in the 90s. They've had 30 years to hear breakbeats now, so I'm ex not expecting any light sticks or cans of beers to get chucked at me. <laughs> <laughs> and I certainly wouldn't be telling the crowd to fuck off. Do you know aye, what I mean? Aye, aye. It's, um, you know, it, people do... And that's through popular music becoming... I think one of the issues with Scotland in, in, in the past was the lack... Scotland's so small in comparison to England, but the lack of of um, variety in the sense that you know people, whether that's through lack of radio channels and you know people, you I mean people would only listen to Tom Wilson on Stepping Out bonus. Or, I mean that was used to be mixes on bonus beats through the week, and and a clear and an attempt to get, let people hear jungle, mm -hmm. drum and, you know, and drum and bass, and predominantly jungle back when we we're doing bonus beats with Tom. I would get Tom Wilson to interview me, come and get me an interview on the show on a Saturday night, stuff like that, to just to try and bring um, some kind of um, recognition. Yeah. Not, not to me, but to the music. Yeah. Because ultimately, going back to what I was saying about when I when I played ABBA on the staircase and and whenever that was eighty one or eighty two, eighty one, eighty two. I've always had this thing about wanting people to hear the music. Mm -hmm. And it's like this. You need to share it with people, don't you? You need yeah, to. No, it's like I'm like I used to go to that breakdance album. I remember we used to play the breakdance cassette, and I used to put the ghetto blaster on the mama's windowsill with the windy open, face it outwards, and play it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> people used to be walking past, but like looking up in the street. Do you know what I mean? Um, but you know, I, I, like like you're saying, I think people have a people are, are much more much more in tune with breakbeats and stuff like that now and that's through listening to R&B hip hop techno and all manner of different styles of dance music who who have incorporated breakbeats mm -hmm. yep. the music that's around now we've almost kind of gone 360 mm -hmm. and we've got a kind of 90s elements going on again it's the you know when I speak to young guys and like oh I said oh that's like something that's like back in the 90s like oh really because we think this is new Aye, <laughs> I know I know still you know but it's like a regurgitated version of what went mm -hmm. on in the, right. in the 90s. 100%. Whether it's the big riffs or, you know, the pianos, chasing status in particular. I've yep. had a few tunes that are very much, you know, I don't know, one, around the 140 BPM kind of breakbeat kind mm -hmm. of... And, and the kids are loving it. So this is like a new generation. So that older generation, I've had, I've, as I said, they've had 30 years to get their heads around break the beats. So, so there shouldn't be any problem dancing. <laughs> I don't know, because we'll have to, maybe, maybe we'll have to show them. All right. <laughs> well, see, <laughs> bizarrely what you say about the dancing, I never got the, the dancing thing until it was one night at a Metalheads gig and I was looking at folk running about me and I, the, the, everybody's dancing on the half step and I was like, still that Scottish mentality of fucking trying to catch up with the beat kind of thing. And I was like, and then I remember getting and then feeling comfortable in that dance yeah. tempo and, it, yeah, and it, the penny dropped and I was like, that's that's it, man. That you know, like yeah, I feel. Well, once you get, once you get it, you get it. You know, it's like the, mm -hmm. the, the actual, the, you know, as you said, the half the halftime aspect of it. It's like uh, I think Groove Rider. I saw Groove Rider doing an interview, and he talks about. I mean, you'll see plenty of videos as well online on YouTube of people at maybe jungle nights who 
have never experienced the music before and trying to keep up with mm-hmm. you know, 175 beats per minute and come, try to dance with every sound. Uh. <laughs> you know, it's almost like a, you know, like you said, it's like a, a like a more of a, a sway kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? It's um, and um, but once people get it, they understand it. But some of those early breakbeat tunes are uh, tunes are very. Um, they are uh, uh, quite quite uh, rough and rugged because they were just straight breakbeat loops that were being cut and pasted and and you know on Cubase and stuff like that. So, um, but you know everybody everybody knows what breakbeats are are now. So whilst I will, I'll be playing stuff, I've tried to dig out the tunes that um, it's not just about the breakbeat breakbeat tunes. It's about um, trying to cover the, uh, a kind of spectrum of what happened at Pandemonium. And, aye, and, and aye, aye. I mean, whether that's tunes that I played, Deviate played, uh, DJ Chaos or Mr. Mix uh, was another resident at uh, Pandemonium. Um, I'd also drop in a couple of ones that were thinking, I didn't really want to play that. It's a bit too cheesy for me, but, you know, I'm trying to do a kind of bit of a... Uh, a uh, mega mix as such. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure in the night as well, you'll be getting fucking vibes for, I've got to dip into this, I've got to dip into that. Well, Gavzy was sitting here, he's like, I just put it on, just bang, bang, make it banging. I said, Gav, right, just stop saying banging. I, I can folk, folk are got to dance to me. Yeah, it's, yeah. You know what I mean? Aye, like, what I do, man. You know, aye, well, that's it. Do you know what I mean? He's like, oh, because I think, you know, once you, you know, as as I was saying earlier on, one of the things for me, it's, 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 it's kind of lost in some ways the DJ and art form of looking at the crowd and watching what's going on. Mm-hmm. I have to change that because I can see. I used to play sometimes manga, do the warm up, and one of the things about doing the warm up is is your job to get folk who are standing at the back at the bar. Aye, to coax them down, isn't it? Aye, get them doing. And I would all to me, it's such a it's like a challenge, right? There's three people on the dance floor. What's going to get the next? Yeah. What do change that you know, and if oh they're not really feeling that, and sometimes you will maybe play tunes. Oh, I'm not really sure. I remember when I played well before people were playing out of space, Prodigy out of space in latter years. After it was years after it came out, it, people weren't playing it. Now loads of people play out of space, but I played it in Manga one night, and I remember thinking I was on the balcony in Bella Madonna listening to the Experience album, which is one of the greatest. Dance music albums of all time for me in that from that breakbeat era. Mm-hmm. I was thinking I'm going to play out of space at Manga as my last tunes, and um, and my last tune. And I was remember, mm, how's this going to go down? But and, and I was I was questioning, thinking maybe I shouldn't play it. I thought, Do you know what, fuck it. I'm playing the Prodigy out of space as my last tune at Manga, mate. I had to rewind it three times, mate. The place. Me. It was like you could not believe it. I was. It was one of those nights that we recorded a majority of the mangas, but we didn't have it recorded. It wasn't filmed, and people that have bumped into said, and I talk and they said I was there that night. You played that that last tune. It was mental. Folk mm-hmm. weren't like climbing the walls, mate. They were just like, you know, as soon as it came on and that string came up and you know the wee you know the little riff comes in. Yeah. Sometimes as a DJ, you have to go out on a limb and you think I'm going to play this this is a bit of an odd track but I'm going to play it because I like it there's something about it 
No, and I'm not saying that the Prodigy out of space is an odd track. It's just it was out of place, it manga in a sense. But not really because it but was, in many ways it joined all the dots, I guess, didn't it as well? I mean, the Prodigy, you know, the Prodigy for me, the pro, uh, the Prodigy back then, the people who were kind of using breakbeats, ultrasonic yourself as well, which is why I liked what you were doing back then. You were, you know, you were, you were, uh, you were incorporating breakbeats, uh, all uh, the Prodigy, alternate. Um, you know, them those two in particular, you know, very quite raw, you know, um, and uh, making so many good tunes back then. But yeah, I'll be, I'm definitely going to be interested to see like which ones I draw for on the night that I'm thinking, oh, I wonder how this is going to go down. Mm-hmm. I, might to, I might have to have a, a big anthem queued up ready. <laughs> I, I think, you know what, I think it's great. I think uh, a lot of folk in dance music, whether they know it or not, I think they have got that punk rock mentality where just fucking get up and do it, you know. And I think, you know, at points of your career, I think you've got that ethos. You know, I'm talking about like, fuck it, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I, I can do this. You know, I, I have, you know, for fucking finding the people and building your decks and you know, sticking with a genre, wanting people to hear it and all that. Because no, yeah. I think it's no a lot of folk are like that, and you can see the ones who are in that and in, in it for the love of the music, and then the ones that are just fucking painting by numbers that don't really know what the fuck they're doing. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think like when I played at that Riverdance thing, they were saying we they don't book DJs and expect them to come and just anthem bash because it's too easy, and mm-hmm. that's not I didn't do that anyway, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, take, I take my DJing deadly seriously. I don't take it as seriously as I used to, you know, like mixtapes, and I used to do mixtapes. I'd be I'd do mixtapes all the time, and sometimes I'd be demented with it because the mixing wasn't tight enough and stuff. You know, I've got quite a tight mixing style that I kind of... That, that, it's kind of hardwired into me how I mix, and I've tried to loosen it up a little bit and try and, and, and have a little bit more fun and looseness to what I'm doing. Um, but um, yeah, no, it's definitely sticking to your guns. Has been something that I've that I've been, you know, I can look back and say I'm glad I've, I've I'm glad that I've done it that way. I've made mistakes. Didn't get me wrong. I've made mistakes, and I've you know, and I, if I could go back and fix them, I would. And 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 um, you know, and and change maybe certain certain paths I've maybe have gone down. I mean, I was never a great fan of taking drugs. I mean, I've never had more than 10 E's in my life mm-hmm. you know somebody who's been involved in the dance music industry in particular the rave scene that's you know that's quite good you know but I tell people they're like what 10 E's I've had 10 E's in a night I know <laughs> 10 E's over the you know but my my downfall was was the bevy and I had a, a bit of an issue with alcohol for quite some time which is why I was partly why I was out of music for, for some time I'm now four years a non-drinker and and one of the reasons I'm here today talking to you is because I didn't drink. Because I think if I'd still drunk, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. I, would be, I think I'd be alive, but I don't think I would be where I'm at in my life where I've right. you know, got opportunities again to, to, to go out and play, you know, unique events like 1994. Do you know what I mean? So That's brilliant, man. Well, you know what? You're fucking, you're still fucking pushing it. You know what I mean? That's the main thing. Ah. And and it's probably that love of music that's helped fucking get you through the dark times. It's probably that yes. love of music that's you're no need to take fucking all the drugs because because that's music's your high. 
No, I mean, that's what I mean. Where I'm, my studio, I've got my little studio set up. I didn't have a studio set up before. I've always kind of had stuff set up in a bedroom and whatever. This is, you know, I have had a studio years ago in Edinburgh, but this is a more recent place, uh, uh, place that I've got, you know, and I can just come here and, you know, anybody like yourself, you know, you can just spend, you know, you come in and the next minute it's 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh shit, man, I've not even done half of what I thought I was going to be doing yeah. here, but. I've been so engrossed in listening to stuff, going through promos, you know, trying to organise stuff to do with events that I've got coming up and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? It's a it's a um, it's a full time job in a way, you mm-hmm. know. And a lot, a, a, a lot of people don't realise how much work, time, and effort and money and goes into what we do as DJs. And I'm a DJ like yourself, DJ and promoter. Yeah, I'm not just DJ. Do you know what I mean? So. Um, and um, but I'll be looking to touching a lot of that in my book when my book comes out. Um, I know you're saying that's been gone for ten years. <laughs> I actually lost twenty thousand words on a hard drive. It failed. And I, lost, I had to start again, but I put it on the back burner. But I started again. But it's coming on. It's coming on. Um, it's it's a bit of a slow burner, but uh, it's getting get it's getting there. And I'll, uh, people people will be able to see a much more in depth. Um, you know, look at my past, my history, and personal stuff as well with my time and care. You know, issues when we're growing up with my mom, a single parent family. All you know, not all the beef in the music industry. I mean, my book's not going to be about beef. I've got too many good things to talk about than yeah, talk about. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, and looking at doing a, a, a documentary as well. So, um, so you know, I've got a lot of things in the pipeline and. Again, as I said, you know, not drinking has given me. It's almost like a a whole new lease of life, man. That's just been like, I'm just back to what I really love doing and what I really enjoy. I lost it. I totally lost it. And whilst I was in that period, I was like, so I wouldn't even go so far to say I was depressed, but I was certainly affected into in the sense that what have I done? How have I how have I got to where I'm at now? Mm-hmm not in the music industry and you know and when you try and get back involved and I know yourself you've been very prolific and keeping it going keeping the wheels going over the years but it's very it was very daunting to look at thinking oh shit man how am I going to get back involved in this mm-hmm. I just I've had to go back to all, all, almost kind of back to the drawing board but one of the things about I've got all the experience now yeah learned over the years as I said about dealing with beef and you know stuff that's going on that I'm thinking I'm not going to be dealing with that you know I've got I can focus my attention on more positive things whether that's editing a mix in the studio or stuff like that do you know what I mean so you know like you said that's you know that's that's the life force for us as DJs and that certainly is for me so right mate that's a perfect way to end it and I look forward to reading your book and I look forward to listening to your set man it's been brilliant talk to you Peter you too sir DJ Kid Facebook DJ I've been up for four days. I don't know what's right and wrong anymore. Oh, wow, this stuff's incredible. Excellent podcast.